In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sidlachik, and today we are going to discuss one of the most iconic American directors, Quentin Tarantino. We'll each talk about one of his films, and then we'll break down his latest film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in our final segment, we'll do one of my favorite things. We're going to rank every one of the films he's directed. We'll also take a brief pause to talk about Among Us. Joining me for the discussion today are OIO movie guy, Billy Perot. <laughs> it's so fancy when you French it up like that. Thank you. Hello. I, I, I can't get enough of that joke. It's Billy Parrot, but uh, on your first show, I think you're <laughs> talking about people always trying to fancy it up. It's true. Uh, also joining us are Casey Helene. Hey, how's it going, everybody? No fun nickname for you today because, frankly, people are sick of you after being on everything for the entire month except for Unfiltered. <laughs> Welcome to the I, show, guys. I'm glad I participate. <laughs> Billy, you were last on for our Wanda Woman episode last month. What have you been up to since then? Not much, really. It's been a whole bunch of work. Um, enjoying the nice weather that we've been having, actually. Uh, wife and I have gone on a few hikes, just try to enjoy some sunshine. Um, still rocking Valhalla here and there, and uh, still reading the Harry Potter books. How far have you made it in Harry Potter? I'm at the Goblet of Fire right now. I just, I, I always forget, like, because I haven't read those books in probably 15 years or whenever the last one came out. But, like, you're like, you read the first three books and you're like, right on, those are good reads, a couple hundred pages. All right. And then you get to like the, the years four through seven and it's like, these are like 850 pages long and it's going to take me some time. So, yeah, but really enjoying it. Good stuff. Casey, you've been doing a lot with OIOs, especially since you've been on New Game Plus with us and uh, doing Game Pass Forever every month. But you haven't been on the main show since our end of the console generation show last December. What have you been up to? Uh, lately, I've been watching a ton of hockey. The Wild are kicking a lot of butt right now, and uh, my little son's team is in a regional tournament right now. And uh, hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have made it to state and uh, they can come home with a, with some hardware. Other than hockey, uh, I've been playing some VR. Uh, my son got an Oculus Quest 2 for Christmas, and I've been playing playing a little bit of that lately. And then uh, just playing a whole lot of Xbox for, for Game Pass and new Game Plus segment. Now, I know this is an audio podcast, so this isn't going to play particularly well, but you were just poking your face that entire time you were speaking. What what were you doing with your face, dude? I I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. This is terrific radio. Well, a couple of things to unpack there. You have three boys. Do they all play hockey, or is it just your oldest? I don't know. Only my oldest. <laughs> Only my middle child plays hockey. Stop uh, um, your face. My my, my young <laughs> I did that just for you. Just so I could see you laugh. My my youngest and oldest uh play play soccer. That's their main sport. And then uh they dabble in some other stuff. Caden's in archery and Gavin kinda does a little bit of everything, swimming, wrestling, baseball. He, he, he's just trying to trying to have fun and, and see what he likes for now. But 
Um, yeah, so soccer is the main one, and then Chase is really, really into hockey. So, well, you yourself are a hockey champion. Our good friend Dewhouse sent a picture. Your name is hanging from a banner in the Civic Center in Mora, Minnesota, as a state high school hockey champion in what, 1997? 97, yeah. Um, he made it 96 and 97. I got to go 97 as a, would have been a, 11th grader on the team at that time and uh yeah got really really lucky we had a good group of good group of guys and not many people get to experience that um it was it was a lot of fun very very lucky and blessed to, to have that experience that's awesome dude and good luck to your kid too that sounds really really cool yeah and isn't caden like an uh, elite, thanks, isn't caden an elite archer like you went to kentucky for him like isn't he like a national level archer well, unfortunately, the last two years have been canceled due to COVID, so he might really suck now. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> he, 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 he was doing, he was doing all right when he when he was able to participate. Um, yeah, he did get to go to, to Kentucky, um, big national tournament, and uh, when he was you know really young. But uh, when he when he can, he's he's hoping the season starts again. It's a it's a winter sport, so hopefully next next year it'll it'll be back and he'll pick up where he left off and. And uh, we'll we'll see how he does. Yeah, good luck to him. You've been playing the quest a bit. What have you been playing in VR? Uh, mainly a game called Super Hot, uh, which is they have some variations of the games on other platforms. But it's kind of a I don't know if you're a spy or what you are, but you have to go through different boards and you can like grab different weapons. And the faster you move, the faster the people you are going against move. So it's almost like you just have to be really, really careful with your controls. And the slower you move in this game, the better off it is, which is kind of really hard to get used to at first. And the other one that I've been playing is in death where you are a, I don't know if you're a, I don't know what you are. You're 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 you, but you're like in purgatory basically. So you're battling against demons and like I don't know if they're zombies or whatever. But uh, it's an archery game, so you have to shoot shoot these these zombies and demons and angels and stuff as they're coming coming at you. It's it is that one's is really 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 fun. That, that game was a blast. There's a lot of like turn a corner and all of a sudden there's a guy jumping at you and it kind of kind of really gets the heart going. So it's fun. That's awesome. Having bought this for your son, what do you think of the investment in VR? He plays it a ton. Like he's on it at, at least once a day. Probably plays it for you know half hour every day. Um, that's in his in his free time. Hey mom, hey dad, can I can I play some VR for a while? And um, but he really really enjoys it. I think as the titles continue to expand. Uh, it's only going to get better. Um, I've seen. A lot of a lot of exciting games have been added over the last month or so. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head that I that I can remember, but um, I know a lot of different titles and stuff are going um, coming out, and can hook the the Oculus up through Steam and play Steam VR through the Oculus, which I know is a very popular uh, method of playing VR as well. So that's just another way to access some of the, the content that's out there. If I had a better computer system, I would I would do that. But right now, I just have a regular old crappy laptop. So it might be something that I that I look into here, uh, especially in some of the uh, Game Pass games that we've been contemplating playing are available only on con or on uh, PC, and uh, makes it difficult to play 
and enjoy every aspect of Game Pass Ultimate. So it might be something I look into. But uh, yeah, with the uh, VR, like I think it's only going to get better. Um, I'm really impressed with Quest 2 and how much fun everybody has when they do play it. Um, it's really like something where like when my parents came over, I had my dad try it on and he was playing some of the games and stuff. And it was just hilarious watching, <laughs> watching him play and seeing, seeing how they react, you know, the first time um, they put the helmet on and, and see everything. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's really interesting considering the phenomenon that the Wii was. The Wii retailed for like 250 maybe 300 Oculus Quest is getting down to that rate. Like, are we on the verge of VR being that like widely accepted and used? I I think we are. If not through the Oculus, um, PlayStation today, today I saw released to their look into how VR is going to look on the PS5 and and uh, how their controllers are going to have the, is it the adaptive? Haptic like, feedback. What, what's the, the haptics is, yeah. So the, the VR controllers are going to have the haptic controls. Um, it's actually going to be, helmet and everything so like they're i think going to probably model their style off the success of the the quest 2 and try to you know jump even further into that that world and make things a lot better so i think it's going to be huge in the next couple years i'm excited to see where it goes billy we'll turn to you now you have a Mm -hmm. ps4 pro that you got last year what do you think you are more likely to buy first a vr headset or a ps5 I like that you included me on this VR because uh, my cousin borrowed me his PS or PSVR headset or excuse me, the the PSVR. Yes. Thank you. Uh, And so, you know, it's got the two glowing orbs on the controllers and everything. And Michelle and I, and a couple of friends have come over in the past couple of years and played it. It's entertaining as man like i dig it i love what they're doing with it i think the headsets are just gonna get better i haven't been able to try the oculus yet and casey you could probably speak more to this than i can i know the graphics can be here and there on some games and like your field of vision can be kind of weird here and there um but i did what's the newest resident evil eight is it uh, or the one where you're with the, the up family in the house is that seven or eight i think that's seven seven whatever it is they have a vr portion of that game and you can play the entire game through vr and it's terrifying man it is terrifying jump scares casey what you're talking about people just like being there and you'll turn and you're like jesus christ (laughs) it's hilarious but and i don't know if this is my age showing or if it's just a uh trying to get my equilibrium right I've found that I can only be on the VR and play around with it, depending on what game it is, for like a half an hour. Like, I've tried to stretch it out a little bit more, but you do get the weird dizzies. At least I do. So I got to take it off and take a break for a little bit here and there. But, man, all around, is it is it just fun as hell? Casey, have you experienced that when it comes to, you know, not even, I'm not saying dizzy, but your equilibrium's <clears throat> all kind of weird and stuff? I don't have any issues with it. One thing the Quest does, which I don't know if other systems do or not, but the eyepiece itself is adjustable Mm -hmm. so there's like three different settings um so like if you don't like it with the whatever setting you can actually like click the eyepieces one way or the other and it'll it'll let you focus a lot better if you don't have it focused i can tell you it does mess with your eyes quite a bit so that might Mm -hmm. be the problem with some of the other headsets 
but I know there are definitely some people like uh, one of our friends, Adam, who who has another quest. He he's kind of the same way. We're going to play it for a little bit, or he said like if it's a game that includes a lot of walking, um, and he finds himself like looking down while he's moving around a lot, it, it messes with his equilibrium a little bit more. But uh, I've I've okay. never experienced experienced it. My kids haven't. Um, but I'm also the type of guy like I really you know love roller coasters and things like that that uh, that make. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I don't have any issues with anything as far as that goes. But I I have heard that yeah, some some people don't handle it all too well. And and I I'd love to try the Oculus mm-hmm. for sure because maybe the newer technology with the headsets is getting better. I don't know how old that thing is that he got, so it could just be that. You know what I mean? Because with the VR headset, I know this is going to be tough for listeners to understand what I'm <clears> saying, <throat> but so the headset's on you like this, and you can pull the actual lens portion of it forward and push it back to kind of click into your face. So it fits on like water goggles better, you know, so you can, so I don't know like if it's that and they just haven't kind of messed with that technology enough to where they can, you know, get a better field of view. But uh, that's kind of how that one's set up. It's still absolutely fun as well, but I have found on some, some aspects of gamings and whatnot, you do kind of get, you know, your equilibrium burned out a little bit. So, you know, all in all, to get back to your question, that long-winded answer I gave you there, Tom. Um, personally, I'm going to go with a PS5, probably as my next piece of equipment to buy. Um, I think that maybe owning a VR headset, depending on the price, it's like, I look at it like, you know, how you have that friend that owns a boat. They get to take care of all the and if you just bring a six pack of beer over, you're the hero. I think you want to be the friend of the guy that owns the VR headset. Good point. <laughs> it's a stupid analogy, but I love it. <laughs> no, it's awesome. Uh, for my part, I've been. I feel like I've just been grinding OIO stuff since like the last main episode. I uh, I've been super busy with work. We had a two person marketing team and one person quit, so it's been just me. We just held our first ever virtual conference and like. I got to moderate some sessions, so that was good. And I tell you, green, green people are fascinated by the dude with the big <laughs> microphone in front of his face. I got so much feedback on the size of my mic. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, Casey how many people asked if you have a podcast? Uh, only one, but I had almost a dozen people comment on the microphone. Nice. Yeah, somebody called me the golden <laughs> voice of Jeeps because it appeared gold in their session. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, fun stuff. I'm also getting ready for baby number two. We are just like two months away from the due date, which is exciting and terrifying. I can't wait to do this show with a newborn. It's going to be grand. That's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm the only one here without kids. So I can like, like, good luck, man. Like I'm available anytime. So whatever you want to do the podcast, <laughs> let's let me know. But yeah, I guess it's all going to depend on how the, the new kiddo is going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that's enough about our personal lives. I'm sure everybody loves the Tom and Casey Facebook catch-up on how the kids are doing and all that Before we get into the main body of our show, we want to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That is premierhealthmn.com. You can follow the crew on social. You can email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Tom Sidlachik, O-I-O, that's T-O-M. S-E-D-L-A-C-E-K-O-I-O on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Casey at Dr. underscore Casey on Twitter. Follow Billy Perot at Parrot.Billy on Instagram. 
And follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash outside is overrated. Now, I know you guys are both excited for this show. Quentin Tarantino is considered to be one of the most iconic American film directors. He reached cult classic status with his first film, Reservoir Dogs, which came out in 1992, and he found mainstream success with his follow-up, Pulp Fiction, in 1994. Some of his trademarks include non-sequential storytelling, strong dialogue, trunk shots, and long shots. While I'm personally kind of lukewarm on his films, I know you both love his work. What makes his films stand out to you? And we'll start with you, Billy. Yeah, Tarantino's just always been a staple in my household growing up. My father loves his movies, you know, and so they're always on. You know, it's before streaming and everything. If Pulp Fiction was on TNT, my dad was watching it, even though we probably owned it on VHS. You know what I mean? So it's always been in my household. So I've always enjoyed it. And I can see why my dad does, and it goes along with what I had, you know, wrote down in our show notes, which is like Tarantino's love of like incorporating all of his favorite movies from like his childhood and like all the cool stuff about those, you know, he writes into his movies. I think that is just probably what makes his movies so cool. You know what I mean? Like you would never think of making another spaghetti Western type of movie, but then we get Django Unchained and it just worked. You know what I mean? Like, it's just great. The music scores alone are phenomenal in his movies. I mean, like, it's so cool. You know, like when Oran Ishii and the crazy 88s are walking out of the doors in Kill Bill and you get that, like just that is just an iconic scene in itself and it lasts for all of i don't know 20 seconds maybe i th- it's just it put, he put, he does such a great job of pulling you into his movies and keeping you interested and it goes along with his dialogue too you know long long periods of dialogue one to two shots on the camera and like 5 minutes of dialogue for one scene but it just keeps you there and I dig it. And so, yeah, that's where he stands out for me, for sure. He really knows what he's doing in his own way, and he does it really well. And Casey, your follow-up? Yeah, I agree with basically everything Billy just said there. Um, it, I expound on it. I just, the characters in all of his movies are are so fantastic. Like He just does such a great job of, of highlighting the characters. And like um, you know, all of his movies have just super strong casts, and they do such a great job of... of portraying the, the vision of, of Tarantino. Um, I love, love the way that he uses mu- uh, music in the, in the movies too, um, where you know, unless you're watching a musical or a Disney movie or something like that, music in, in most movies is kind of an afterthought where Tarantino, like he just knows that right song to enhance the scene so well. Um, it's like, yeah, that, that my thing is that, you know, Pulp Fiction and, and you see uh, in the overdose scene, um, uh, urge overkills version you know girl you'll be a woman soon is playing like you can't great scene. you can't see it without hearing that song you know like everything it's like they're one and the same and you don't get that with with most other movies and you know other other than that it, it's just the knowing you know tarantino from from the first movie to, to his last movie you know at some point in time the climax of the movie is just going to leave you like laughing out loud on the floor um as something just turns into some sort of giant bloody mess. (laughs) 
True enough. We're not going to go movie by movie and break down each one of his films, but I thought for this opening segment it would be fun for us each to pick a film and talk about why it stood out for us. I'm going to kick us off with Jackie Brown, which I would argue is probably his least well-known film. I was not aware of it at all going into the show, but I really, really enjoyed it. A quick rundown of the main plot points. It focuses on an airline stewardess who is picked up by the cops while she is delivering cash for an arms dealer. Basically, she gets off a plane, she's walking to her car, and the cops swoop in. They know exactly how much money she has. They know exactly where it's going, and she's kind of... They've got her. Like, she's she's in a bind. She has to convince both the police and the arms dealer that she's working with both sides, and she hatches a plan to steal a half a million dollars from the arms dealer from right out from underneath both sides. And she also has the task of surviving the standard Tarantino violence. So pretty interesting setup. Why it stands out to me, this is the only movie where Tarantino didn't write the source material. It was based on the novel Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard, which I haven't read. Uh, and I thought it was noteworthy that he also owns the rights to two other Elmore Leonard books. So we'll see if those ever come to fruition. It was his first linear narrative in a movie, and I liked the way the protagonist, Jackie Brown, played both sides. I thought Pam Greer was just phenomenal in this film. Casey, uh, what is your recollection and your reaction to this film? Yeah, I really liked the film. I, I, I didn't think I was going to because the first time I watched it, um, I think it was 20 some years ago when I had first seen it, you know, like probably right when it came out. And I remember thinking it was kind of boring. Um, Pam Greer was amazing. Uh, I think she was the highlight of the film. I, towards I thought like, hasn't she been in more? Like I actually looked up her IMDb to see what she was in and I'm like shocked to see that she really wasn't in that many movies. And even like Tarantino, somebody who uses a lot of the same cast members in his movies, never brought her back in any of his other movies which was really disappointing well i guess she wanted to uh she auditioned for a part in pulp fiction she wanted to be the drug dealer's wife but uh quentin tarantino didn't think that she was gonna be pushed around by the drug dealers well he didn't think that'd be convincing on the screen so he went with the actress that he went with and then he kind of wrote uh jackie brown with pam greer in mind there's also a lot of note uh, a lot of nods to, what's the cop show, Foxy Brown, which they reference in Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. They talk about Pam Greer while driving around in the car in Reservoir Dogs. So I thought it was really interesting because I watched yeah. these films almost back-to-back to catch that connection. Billy, what were your thoughts on this film? Yeah, I, got, I agree a lot with Casey. It was one of those movies that, out of all Quentin, Quentin Tarantino movie, it is not one that I've gone back to and rewatched in a long, long time. So it was hard for me to re, you know recollect a lot of points in the movie besides what you've already described and like anything else that stood out more to me other than Pam Greer's performance I mean really she kind of stole that entire movie and really made it all you know I mean it was centralized on around her but damn did she do a really good job at it so yeah you know and it's that uh I don't want to say it's a blaxploitation movie by any means but it's that Foxy Brown, sexy, you know, African-American female lead kick-ass, badass kind of type of movie from the 70s and stuff. So, you know, there's a definite influence from black exploitation films, which I'm not familiar with the genre or what it is. But I'm, a lot of what I read said that it was a direct homage. And actually, the font they used on like the movie posters and on the cover of the movie is from Foxy Brown. Like it's the same font just adapted for Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought it was Tarantino's like homage, even though it was a, it was a, uh, adapted from a book. I think he had his, his nod in there of, of that seventies genre type of movie for sure. So, you know, the movie had great points and it was really well done as far as the writing for Pam Greer went. So yeah, I have to agree with Casey and you on that one. And one of the things I missed when talking about the hallmarks of Tarantino films was that he always has this awesome ensemble cast. Like there are some big name actors in all of his films. And uh, this was right in that same line with Samuel L. Jackson, Robert De Niro, Pam Greer. Like there was some star power in this movie. And I think Mm -hmm. my closing thought on it is it just, it felt a little different from his other films. Like it felt much older and just, I liked the, I liked, the linear narrative, honestly, like it's sequential storytelling can be hard for me to follow sometimes. Those were our thoughts on Jackie Brown. Billy, why don't you set us up for a discussion on Inglorious Bastards? Inglorious Bastards, probably one of my top three Quentin Tarantino movies, I've got to say. Um, yeah. For those who have not seen it, I hope you certainly, for everybody else, you know kind of what's going on. But for those who have not, uh, it's we're in World War II. We are, you know, we are talking about Nazis. We are talking about an American squad led by Brad Pitt. It's kind of like, you know, his little, he's got a, you know, a group of soldiers that he's chosen personally um, to go and hunt Nazis and scalp them. So that's what he wants. He wants his God scalps. I can't do a good Brad Pitt doing a Texan accent or Missouri accent. I don't remember what it is, but he plays Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and uh, they're all Jewish soldiers, which I love. You know what I mean? So it's it's the uh, it's them getting back at the cruelties of what the Nazis did by just being utterly destructive and destroying and killing them in terrible, terrible ways and satisfying ways at the same time. Um, it centers around a lot of, um, them trying to work up the ranks of the third Reich and work their way to Christoph Waltz character, Hans Panda. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, I can't remember if I am. Yeah. And so it's, it's their inner workings uh, and they're like, you know, their highs and their lows of getting their way to Hitler and all the people at the end of the movie that are in the movie theater, you know, like the higher ups, the higher ups of the Nazis and the SS. And yeah, it's just an all around fantastic movie. It is gory. It is funny at times. It is sad at times. It is terrifying at times. And I'll get into more of that detail when we talk about Christoph Waltz down later in this podcast, but he stole that movie, hands down. That is the first time I've ever seen Christoph Waltz in a movie. And my God, the first scenes are terrifying, are terrifying. He just does so well. So this movie, yeah, got to be probably one of my all-time favorites. I take umbrage with a little bit of the Christoph Waltz. I agree that he was phenomenal early on in this movie and like, like mm-hmm. one of the best characters, like, I can recollect good in the beginning part of the movie, but I really take umbrage with how his character kind of flipped at the end. Like I get that he had a plan and like he saw an opportunity to make a deal and end the war and all of that, but he just got kind of wacky at the end. Like he kind of went off the rails. He went from Ace Ventura to Ace Ventura 2 when Nature Calls in the same film. I feel like you're going to bring that God sequel up every time we talk about this because you just disagree with my thoughts on Ace Ventura 2. <laughs> I was, okay. I was, 
how where is that going okay he uh, knows where uh, that's going he knows where know, that went. Know, yeah. yeah yeah that was just a jab at me too i get it i see where you're going with that but do you guys disagree? tom i don't disagree with you that like his the the twisted villainness does turn obviously at the end because you can see that his empire is crumbling and then he just becomes this shell of a man that he once was and everything but boy does he sell it on both on both sides of the spectrum literally moments before he goes wacky he uh he strangles an actress to death with his bare hands because she uh put in plan this motion to kill the high command in this movie theater and then like moments Mm -hmm. later he's giddy about making a deal with the americans like it just it was it was it was such a huge departure from what his character had been up to that point that i it kind of lost me and it took me from like my favorite character to somewhere else that we'll discuss later in the show but i think it's it's a portrayal of how twisted the mind of that character is supposed to be that fictional character is supposed to be somebody who can lure you in with his words whether it be of encouragement and trust or terror and fear like he is so terrifying on both ends you know what i mean he can go from his super highs and super low almost like in a bipolar kind of level you know what i mean like where you can believe him when he's like trying to listen to brad pitt and his characters describe that they're italian golami and he's like oh okay and he speaks italian and then they just kind of give him just yes no answers and he doesn't like immediately arrest them right away yes exactly i love the hand gestures the over the top italian (laughs) hand gestures are the best you know and then yeah and then he goes from that to capturing them and then strangling the lady to death and then scared out of his mind like just i I think they wrote that character perfectly because he's so over the place and he's so terrifying and hilarious on both sides of it so yeah like i think he stole the show i really do i think it was just a phenomenal movie with him added to it made it just even better and Casey, your thoughts on the character, specifically Colonel Hans Landa? Uh, I love Christoph Waltz, and this performance, I thought, top to bottom, was phenomenal. Um, it's inter- like after hearing you say that, it is kind of interesting to see, like, huh, yeah, he could have, like, he just strangled the woman. He could have notified them of the two spies in there. Everything would have been fine. The war would have gone on. You have just, like, I think he's just sick of the game. You know, like he saw a way out. This was his way out. He took it, you know, and in the end, he's, I mean, he's a bad guy. Yes, he got art, but he won really, you know, like he, in his mind, he thought he was going to end up in the United States, living a lavish life of luxury. I mean, he still is. He's just going to have a swastika stamped on his forehead. But (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was. It's just, he saw, he saw a way out. He was just sick of the game. He's sick of hunting down. He was, he, you know, like he, he saw a way out and he took it. It doesn't matter what side he's on. It's a whoever pays the most money or takes care of him the best. That's how I see it, Casey. That's a great point. Yeah, very well summarized, Billy. I, mean, I think I mean, movie itself was is phenomenal. I I love I love this movie. Oh, we're going to have a hot debate about this a little bit later. Billy, you have a great note here in the show notes. You pointed out that this is where Quentin Tarantino decides to rewrite history. Like, ultimately, in this movie, like, German High Command is wiped out in this incident in a movie theater, and it's the end of World War II, and it's uh, 
I wanted to take some time to kind of talk about this ending and how we feel about it. You guys have both stated that you love this movie. What is it about the ending that grabs you? Casey, go ahead. <laughs> I like the retelling of the history. I, I think it's really kind of funny when he does that. Um, I guess he's only done it in two movies, but like seeing that, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and how he pictured his ending in that too. It's like just funny to see it in the twisted mind of Quentin Tarantino. The ending specifically, I just, you know, like... What if, you know, what if this actually happened? What if it was that simple? I mean, I don't think ever would have been dumb enough to put every single high-ranking official from the Nazi party into one small area. <laughs> but, you know, what if it happened? And then what if it really was? Like, if it wasn't the spies, if it wasn't uh, the bastards that did it, it was a Jewish girl that escaped that we see in the very first scene that would have brought down the entire Nazi party. Uh, I think it's it's just really well thought out kind of just you know uh something i never would have been creative enough to think of so you know kudos to quentin tarantino for thinking of that story and and portraying it in such a way it's such a bold move to rewrite the end of world war ii because that's literally something that i think everyone on the planet knows how it actually played out and he just said nope this is uh this is how it could have ended i think very bold and it surprised me i had watched this movie once before but for some reason the ending didn't stick with me like i had no concept of how it was gonna all come together and it happened basically they, they noted it was like right as u.s was landing so like they had invaded france everything was that the u.s hadn't even really jumped into the war yet because the bastards were i mean they're u.s soldiers but they were behind the scenes they were you know they were um this secret you know marauders i don't whatever you want to call them but they you know the u.s hadn't even gotten involved yet if the war was over before the u.s even came like think how many lives would have been saved i uh, just that little that little thing I mean, it's, it's obviously kind of unrealistic for it to happen but i thought it was clever and uh you know the just movie itself was just very well executed mm-hmm. yep i mean I thought it was great. I thought it was great. And I'm going to love talking about the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when we do talk about it, because I had that like jump up from the seat moment where I was like, he did it again. And I love it. I did. I jumped up and I was like, oh my God, that's hilarious. Because I thought the ending of Glorious Bastards was so over the top, so gory and unnecessary but it was so good. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe that's just me. I forgive a lot of movies. I forgive a lot of movies and Quentin Tarantino. I forgave him for rewriting it and doing a completely unorthodox ending. And it was just like, I don't know if you wanted to start chanting USA, USA <laughs> after it, you know what I mean? But man, it just felt good to just watch Hitler die and the whole third Reich burn to the around in a movie theater you know what i mean because you're you're used to watching world war ii movies like me i am a die hard band of brothers fan that's probably one of my favorite series to watch at least once a year you see the absolute atrocities that hitler and the third reich and the nazis deployed on everybody and the tragedies that people had to go through and so i don't know if it's just being a lover of world war ii history and seeing such a huge twist that just made me appreciate it so much more because it was just like yeah die hitler you f mother f even though this was 
you know, 80 years ago. And it was just, I loved it. I loved it. So, and I'll talk more about like my jump for joy, t- surprise twist ending when we get to the end of the show here. So yeah, all around. Absolutely love this movie. Absolutely. And Casey, you wanted to discuss Django Unchained. Um, yeah. So Django Unchained, it is a story of a bounty hunter. Uh, searching for three brothers, uh, but he doesn't know what the brothers look like. Uh, so uh, the opening scene is him approaching a caravan of, of slaves. One of the slaves worked or belonged to a plantation that the three brothers worked uh, used to work at. So he has to buy the slave so he could identify the three brothers. The bounty hunter learns... Uh, afterwards, the slave was separated from his wife, and after he helps him, uh, he intends to find her when he's, when he's freed. The slave turns out to be a natural when it comes to gunplay, uh, and the bounty hunter soon realizes that he has a useful ally and convinces the slave to work with him through the winter. Uh, in exchange, he says that he will help him travel to Mississippi and get his wife back. Uh, after collecting bounties through the winter... They travel to Mississippi and learn that his wife is the property of a notorious plantation called Candyland. The bounty hunters launch a plot to get into Candyland and free his wife from the bonds of slavery. And then Tarantino magic ensues. It's a great summary. <laughs> that was good. What that was makes good. this film stand out so much to you? The cast, you know, I keep going back to the cast, but the cast in this movie is marvelous. Uh, again, Christoph Waltz just amazing as dr king shells uh his charisma his quick wit uh everything that you loved about him in uh inglorious bastards as the as the bad guy shines equally as bright in this one as a good guy uh jamie fox as as django the main protagonist just amazing job uh seeing his character develop from being just as broken and battered slave shackled being drugged behind a wagon when we first see him to this blossoming lethal bounty hunter. Um, like <laughs> the scene that just made me laugh uh, is when they, <laughs> Christoph Walls first has him in that haberdashery or whatever, and they're picking out the clothes. And he's like, you're going to let me pick up my clothes? And he's like, well, yeah, you know? And then they, the next scene, they're at this plantation uh, looking for the three brothers. And the outfit that he chose was just like, <laughs> just made me crack up so much. It's just this bright blue, like, oh, here I am. Look at me. You know, I, I'm, Free. I'm like, you know, it was just just amazing. Uh, and then, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio is pretty much awesome in everything he does. But as the bad guy, Kelvin Candy in this movie, the plantation owner, just an amazing villain. Um, you don't get to see Leo as a villain very often. Uh, he did a fantastic job. It's something I found out afterwards. Like, there's a scene at the sort of towards the end of the movie uh, when he finds out about the plot to free uh, the wife, uh, Broomhilda or Hildy. Um, he cuts his hand like with the, with a knife after he opens up the skull. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't notice him cut it, but I saw the blood. I'm like, what the heck? So after as I looked it up, he actually like he took a knife that they had and cut his own hand to add effect to it. That's actually Leonardo DiCaprio's blood in that scene. Like he actually like just to add to it. That's how much of a like a, a character, amazing actor he is. Slight correction. Um, he actually he accidentally smashed a glass when he hit the table. He pounds on the table, breaks a glass and like smashes it with his bare hand. Really? It's the teacup. Oh. 
he goes wham and he slams the teacup on the ground or on the table and that's when he cuts his hand and that was my mistake but he kept going with it yeah my, uh, my, my source was informed then all right well, yeah and like re-watching it but either way like the fact that he yeah, just kept going and like blood dripping down his hand, like it, it really added to that scene. So kudos to him for not being like, hey guys, I just my hand, let's stop this. <laughs> he just mm-hmm. pushed on through. Right. Yeah, that's such a remarkable um, scene. And like rewatching it, knowing that that's an actual cut on his hand, like it's just phenomenal. Like he glances at it for like a second and then just goes on with the scene. And it's just phenomenal he smears his own blood on the actress's face like she didn't know that was coming yeah. that was part of the script it was like oh my god that's uh he's so no, good just amazing and then uh the other thing i liked i mean it, it's a love story like shocking quentin tarantino did a freaking love story um <laughs> you know like, there's not there's not much romance in tarantino movies and this one is like centered entirely around the love of django and hildy and then in the end, yeah, you splash in the typical Tarantino graphic violence, and and it just worked. I mean, it was it, I really enjoyed this movie. I did too. Django, Django is the only Tarantino film that really grabbed me the first time I watched it, and just like I never let me go. Like I thought this movie was just phenomenal, and largely because of Leo and uh, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, totally. They, you know, again, I'll. We'll probably repeat this a few times, but Tarantino's casting has always probably been like phenomenal in most of his movies. And this definitely is one of those that the casting was absolutely fantastic. Samuel Jackson, the butler, you know, I'm not going to say what he prefers to himself as in the movie, but the butler for Candy, he's even great. And he's in the movie for all of what the back half of it, you know what I mean? And all the characters did just such a phenomenal job in this movie. I mean, it was so well done. And Jamie Foxx is just killer, just a great actor in general. And he really stood out in this movie as, you know, as something so like, that's such a tortured character who's just after the love of his life, who is just stripped from him in a time of, absolute sorrow to just see this badassness of it is just it's it's moving and i do like how you said it's a love story casey that's such a great point man like out of all the anger and violence and terrible racism it's a love story that's great i love that that's a really really cool way to put that i like that a lot we've talked about three of tarantino's films so far and we're going to go into more detail later in the show but what is it you feel you respect most about tarantino's work is it his writing his directing or his acting billy we can start with you on this one i'm going writing he uh i mentioned it briefly before but his way of i I really want to see a tarantino script I'm, i'm curious if that thing is like the thickness of you know a a novel that you know because i i swear you could be on one scene like with hans in inglorious bastards with the uh with the frenchman in his cottage at the beginning of the movie how long is that scene like 15 minutes it seems like it you know what i mean but it just holds you there the entire time so his writing style is phenomenal and we go on to talk about how well the character, excuse me, well, we went on before about how he has now, like in, his, in two movies, has rewritten like historical facts as 
his own. And I thought that was awesome. And he did it well. He, all of his characters, they're not only portrayed well, they are cast well, and they are all written well. I mean, even the gimp in Pulp Fiction was just hilarious. And he didn't say a thing. But he was just hilarious and his character stood out because you can talk to anybody and they'll be like, yeah, the gimp from Pulp Fiction. That was hilarious. You know what I mean? Like, so there's just something about his writing that he just does such a phenomenal job at. So, yeah, that is 100 percent what I think he is best known as, in my opinion. That's so interesting. I would have thought you would say his directing. I agree with you. I think uh, that he's a phenomenal writer. Overall, I'm not the biggest fan of his films, to be honest, but I think he has some great characters and the dialogue can just be absolutely exceptional. Casey, mm-hmm. well, what do you think stands out for this director? Uh, I'm going to go with, with director um, only because I've seen some of the other movies that he's written and maybe it's that they had bad directors, but I don't quite enjoy those movies as much as I like the movies that Tarantino directed. Let me uh, jump in here. The two that come to mind are True Romance and From Dusk Until Dawn. Are there others, or are those the two that you're using for your comparison? Um, seeing From Dusk Till Dawn, that one's not too bad, but it, not as good as the other ones. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, I think tr- I know he's had a hand in a lot of different movies, but... Didn't he do... Um... Death something. Death. Death Help race. me out here, guys. Death Race. Was it Death Race? Yeah, wasn't that part of the Grindhouse? Grindhouse, yes, thank you. Like, there's a couple of movies that came out back-to-back that he just directed and not wrote, or vice versa. Yeah, I don't recall. But I know... I Death Proof. Death Proof. Um, John, from Dustal John, yeah, Death Proof was the, the, the racing yep, one. Yeah, that's right. He had a part in yeah, True Romance, Natural Born Killers. I think he wrote part of that. Uh, Desperado, I think he was part of. I don't know if it was a, just a producer or writer on that, mm-hmm. but um, I mean, back to the back to the question. Um, I just think like you can't really have bad writing <laughs> in these movies and then have his directing. Know, just pull it off obviously it's it's his his writing initially that, that does it but i i just think like yeah just from the other some of the other movies that i've seen that he's had a part in and, and co-written i just think like for me the directing like his the movies that he's actually directed are is what i enjoy the most so that's why i would say the direction is is what uh i lean towards well, that's interesting because my favorite movie that he wrote is True Romance, which I think is better than any of the movies he's directed. So, I don't know. I think he's a phenomenal writer. We I haven't have... seen it, so maybe yeah, I need you to watch True. You should watch True Romance, dude. It's Christian Slater, great movie. Yeah, great movie. For all the crap you give me for all the movies I haven't seen and you haven't seen True Romance, dude, dude. You have seen a lot less movies than I have that you need to see. Dude. I, I need to see one. I need to see three movies. You, you need to see like a hundred, man. Let's fair, fair enough. We have we actually have some questions from the OIO community. We'll start with Mike in the OIO Discord community. He asks, or more accurately, he states, Tarantino's great strength as a filmmaker is the passionate love reflected in uh, the movies from genres he fell in love with in his youth. 
That is also his biggest weakness sometimes. It sometimes feels more like he is imitating than paying homage. What are you guys' reactions there? Like, do his films stand in their genres on their own, or do they feel like imitations of the genres that he's playing in? That's a really good point, Mike. Um, They border on silly sometimes. I will agree with him on that. You can get really over the top with some like the absolute decapitation and blood spurts from like Kill Bill when she's battling the crazy 88 in the dojo restaurant, whatever that scene is, where like an old Japanese samurai movie, it was very... I won't say over the top, but very like dramatized, like, you know, very loud, very kung fu-y, over the top screaming and stuff like that. But then he just adds like the whole other level of like hundreds of gallons of blood just being sprayed everywhere. So I could see the, I could see the, where he's borderlining on paying homage, but you know, imitating to a point of silliness where it's like okay you can you can back off a little bit so uh, i can agree with mike on that for sure i mean i think if you backed off it just wouldn't be the same you know like (laughs) he had to i i'm sorry i'm not saying like back off all the way and like make it just a terrible movie i'm just saying like (laughs) But it does make you laugh, right? You know what I mean? The -the over-the-top silly stuff is not bad. I'm just... That's what I love about... One of the main things I love about his movies. But I know there's a lot of... Like, my wife hates his movies for that reason. Like, she can't stand all the blood and the gore and stuff like that. But, like, for me, it's like, whatever that happens, I just... I laugh out loud. Like, I just can't help it. Um, But I could see, like, for the question, you know, like, I think... um, I mean, I guess I just can't see it as a weakness because I I love it so much when he's kind of playing that. <laughs> I mean, the, the homage is, is to me like the the settings and the scenes like back from when like, kind of you were talking, Billy, in the beginning. Like that's one of the things that you had mentioned that you actually like about his his movie, and then like just the, the over top ness of it all. I think is what adds that Tarantino twist to it. And without that, you just have the old movies. You don't have a Tarantino movie. So I don't know. I think it's really cool that he tackles so many different genres. It seems like every film falls into a different genre. And I think, I mean, it's not like he's an expert in one thing and he pulls it off again and again. Like I generally, generally speaking, I enjoy Guy Ritchie's films more, but like Guy Ritchie has his heist films. It was very easy to break him into like three different categories. He has his heist films. He has his other properties that he tackles and puts his spin on. I, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for how Tarantino tackles a new genre every time. And, you know, he puts his own flair into it and there's this, like certain themes that make it a Tarantino film, like the -the over-the-top violence, but I think it's awesome how he tackles all the different genres. So uh, to summarize, Mike, you're wrong. Sorry. (laughs) Hobby Box Joe Burns couldn't be on the show, but he did ask us a series of questions. Uh, The first, the use of music in his films, immersive or distracting? What a dumb question, Joey. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, it's, very, it's very very immersive for me I, I like again like i think the music in his movies the way that he uses the, the music to enhance the scene is, is done better than most directors out there so i think it's completely immersive i've never once been distracted by it other than the fact that like i can't get the Django out of my head like whenever i think of that movie um that's distracting to me on a daily basis but during the movie it didn't bother me at all really 
100% it is. I think I'm saying 100% too much during this, by the way. So make sure to put a little ticker every time I say that at the bottom of the screen. Um, <laughs> no, immersive, 100%. Yeah, like I almost did it again. Uh, immersive. It's his soundtrack makes the movie even better. It's so great. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Django. That's perfect. You know, where he's just walking slowly on his, you know, trotting slowly on his horse while Django is being played. The crazy eight or no, uh, the band that's playing right before the crazy 88 scene, that uh, all female band that's playing. Um, even like the old samurai music when, you know, uh, when Uma Thurman is battling Oranishi in the snow, just the like slight sounds and the, you know, Japanese music in the background. I mean, it, it totally makes all the scenes. So no, I don't think it takes away at all from any of the music. Not at all. I have a slightly different opinion. I agree that there are some very high highs with the music and the immersion that it creates. One that immediately springs to mind is Michael Madsen in Reservoir Dogs with the torture scene when he turns on the sounds of the 70s and he's grooving as he's cutting off the dude's ear. Like that is, uh, the music <laughs> makes that scene uh, palatable for me. But I think, especially after Kill Bill Volume 1, that there were some misses on the music. I think there were times where the music didn't match necessarily the tone or the action on the screen and I found it occasionally distracting like i'm not saying the soundtracks for the other films were bad but i don't think after kill bill he was quite as masterful as matching the mood with the music i think maybe there's almost too much pressure to do it and so he was cramming in music that wasn't a perfect fit hmm. i'll have to rewatch the latest movies again and see if i agree or disagree with you on that i want to see i disagree with you but that's just because you like disagreeing with me. So <laughs> Fair enough. Give you the benefit of the, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and rewatch a lot of the latest ones. Hobby Box said he saw Django in the theater and at the midpoint he thought, this is amazing. It might be my favorite Tarantino movie. After the second half, it fell back to the middle of the pack for him. He asks, do you think the director has a second half problem where the buildup is great, but then it either pivots or falls off on the back half? I can start off on this one. I think, uh, there was a point in Django that I thought really lag. Like after Dr. King Schultz dies, like I felt like between that and the ultimate climax of the movie, I could have done without all of that. Like I would have liked the murderous rampage and the reunion after King Schultz died. So like, I don't necessarily think it's a second half problem, but I think in that specific film, there was some time that lagged. That's Billy... a really good question. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't agree with it. I think I'm, I'm trying to think back through all the movies. The only one that like I felt was really slow the whole time though, was more once upon a time in Hollywood Agreed. And with Django specifically. Like, I don't remember it ever like peaking and then coming down. I mean, I can see your point after the death of, of King Schultz, but like even then, like, I mean, yeah, he could have just had, you know, gone out guns blazing, rescued Ildi right there. And, and, and the movie could have been over. It wouldn't have been quite as exciting then I don't know I, I I don't I don't see that um I really don't think especially at the midpoint of the movie I feel like most of his movies are like just rampant up completely completely and then they do kind of end Django might be the only one where there is kind of that epic battle and then there's a little bit more after that 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 you have but I think it's no I don't see it I I, I don't I don't agree with I, I what uh, what Joey thought so would have been interesting for him to be on this podcast because 
our, our his thoughts and, and uh, on the first two questions are, are are very confusing to me. Billy, do you think that Quentin Tarantino has a second half problem? No, no, I'm going to have to disagree. Um, I think it's just because a lot of his movies are long. Maybe that's what gives that impression. You know what I mean? Like everybody's so used to an hour and a half to two hours these days that you go and watch a, a Scorsese movie and that's three hours long. And a lot of people sometimes say, ah, oh, you know, that was a little too long. You know, it was a little, I, I didn't just didn't feel it at the back half. Well, yeah, you probably just burned out because you're used to an hour and a half and now you're watching a double length movie of that sort. So maybe that's what he's referring to. And especially with your, if you're watching it in the theater, you know what I mean? So I don't know that I, I'm going to have to go with a no on that one. I'll take it to maybe a couple of scenes were a little bit longer than they needed to be. But even then, no, I, I'm still pretty in my seat through most of those movies. Um, I was trying to think the hateful eight who watched the hateful eight the latest here. I made it through the first hour. I didn't finish the movie. Casey, did you watch the Hateful Eight the latest? Okay, can you explain the oh, yeah. Hateful Eight? How, how was that? As it was, a, it's it's been about a year since I watched that for the first time, so I'm I'm having a hard time recollecting any of the if there was slow parts in the movie, and maybe we could agree with the first hour is pretty slow with Burnsy on that with Burnsy on that, like maybe a second half or a first half could have been a little bit better in I... that movie. I think the hateful eight had a first half problem. <laughs> yeah, you just stopped way too soon. Yeah, it, it is. I I can see where you say it's got. It definitely is some slower moving because what the hateful eight does is it builds a lot on the character in the very beginning of the movie. So there's a lot of like, how does this person fit in? Who is this person? Um, what are they doing in this situation? Trying to explain like you know, it's like that whole like. Why are they here? Do you believe that? Um, and then hits the fan. Like it's what once the do you make it to the poison scene? There's a poison scene. I see that's you completely. You got to finish this movie, dude. That point on, it's money. Like it's <laughs> like, um, it's clear that there is a, a saboteur. In in the in the establishment, uh, which Kurt Russell's character, who he was freaking awesome in that this movie, like I loved him in this movie, you know, he was very suspicious from the very beginning. Uh, his his suspicions are confirmed <laughs> um, ethically. <laughs> yeah, you seriously, you have to watch this, the rest of the movie because um, after that, it's just like it just snowballs. Like characters die, um, characters are revealed for who they actually are. It, it, <laughs> I I don't want to spoil it because I, I I really want you to go back and see it. But yeah, there's it it, it definitely didn't have a a middle end problem. It has like you said a slow first hour problem more than anything, <laughs> and then after that it's it's very Tarantino. <laughs> I guess you could say this is probably Tarantino's like homage to like a who done it right, like a murder on a train kind of a. Uh, film right because it's a gathering of a bunch of characters and character development and then the murder and then the whodunit aspect of it so yeah I need to rewatch that one again because after your retelling of it a little bit to Tom I'm like 
Oh yeah, that's right. It was a really, it was a really good movie in the back half. So, okay. I like that point at the, it's a first, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a front half problem and not a back half problem. So no, um, so to going some... back to what Bernsey said, uh, no, I don't think Tarantino has that problem. I think it's a length problem. And I think people get burned out with three hour long movies these days. I'm going to summarize one of his questions as a statement, and then we'll close on one last question from him. Do you have a favorite line from a Tarantino film? Uh, for him, as a former English teacher, he once had an exchange where it was hard not to tell a student English, mother do you speak it? <laughs> I think that's just a funny anecdote. Well, I'm going to follow that up with the question, uh, which Samuel L. Jackson performance is your favorite? For me, I think it's pretty obvious. Like To me, it's... Jules Winfield with a bullet like that scene made Pulp Fiction what it is do you guys have a differing opinion oh it's Jules for me too uh and my favorite <laughs> favorite line in a Quentin Tarantino movie comes from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood it's real quick and you probably don't even notice it half the time but when um Brad Pitt and Leo are sitting down to watch Leo's uh show the FBI. one that he like does the cameo on you know the one show thing and he's like tried to say you know hey i got this acid rolled cigarette he's like you want you want to do this now and leo sits back in his chair and says nah my booze don't need nobody <laughs> just like, I, I <laughs> like that is so like i've never heard it before it just made me laugh i, I love that line yep i love that i'd have to go with uh yep samuel L. jackson pulp fiction hands down my favorite line from a quentin tarantino uh bruce willis um, Pulp Fiction and his girlfriend or his lover or whatever. Where's Where's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. And then they just ride off like <laughs> Zed dead. Zed's dead, baby. Like yeah, perfect. Yeah, love that one. My favorite uh, Tarantino it line. It's not from a Quentin Tarantino directed movie. It's from True Romance. Uh, Christian Slater's talking to the girl that he just bedded, and uh, they're talking about life, and he's like, you know. You like kung fu movies. I'm just excited that when I took off your dress, you didn't have a dick. <laughs> Priceless. I I think uh, we should also call out Samuel Jackson's performance as the butler in Django, just because like he was much older, he was much heavier, and like really different role for him, and he was phenomenal. <laughs> Next up, we're gonna do Tom Awesome's top five for our top five today. I wanted to highlight my top five characters in Quentin Tarantino films. It's time now for. Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Number 5. Colonel Hans Landa, played by Christopher Waltz in Inglorious Bastards. I know you guys love this character, and for most of the movie, I loved him too because he is the charismatic villain that always strikes a chord with me. I just... The way he fell off at the end of the movie drug him down the list to me. Like he was a legitimate contender for number one for me through most of that film. And then he just barely hung on. Number four, Louis Gara, played by Robert De Niro in Jackie Brown. I thought this was kind of an interesting choice because he's a side character for most of the film. He's just hanging out. He just he just got out of prison and he's just like chilling out. And then like down the home stretch in this movie, like you see this is a bad MFR and like he's got a mean streak to him and like it just surprised me and I thought De Niro was awesome. Number three, 
Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained. He was that charismatic villain, just one step from falling into the deep end at all times. And uh, we talked about the iconic scene where he cuts his hand open, and uh, he was just phenomenal. These last couple of choices were really hard for me to differentiate between. At number two, I have Jules Winfield, played by Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. I mean, I don't understand why people love Pulp Fiction so much. I thought it was mostly fine, but uh, where it shined to me was when Samuel L. Jackson and uh, John Travolta were talking. Those scenes where these bad hitmen are talking about giving ladies foot rubs and uh, just really humanized them and were phenomenal. Before we get to my top choice, I have a couple of honorable mentions. I had to bring up Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought he was... Again, phenomenal. Leo always is. He always brings it. I'd love to do a Leo show. The problem is, like, I love all of it. So it's, like, hard to have any, like, contrarian viewpoints when it's like, yeah, Leo's good. Yep. Yeah, the <laughs> aviator is pretty good. I'm a big Gangs of New York guy. Yeah. <laughs> and one more honorable mention that I want to bring up. Oswaldo Mowbray, played by Tim Roth in The Hateful Eight. I love the way that he disappeared. I mean, it was a little similar to Christopher Waltz as Dr. King Schultz and Django, but, uh, you know, it was English instead of German, and I don't know. I I like that character, but not liking the movie as much kind of drug him down the list for me. And my number one, the top character to me in any Quentin Tarantino film was Dr. King Schultz, played by Christopher Waltz and Django. I feel like we've already talked about it a lot. Like, I don't have a lot more to add. Like, he was just, he was phenomenal, like completely different character from Colonel Hans Landa and just uh I don't know I thought he was amazing and my favorite character in any of the movies by a wide stretch uh I see you guys also did top fives do we want to talk about like the biggest departures between our lists yeah you didn't have uh Beatrix Kiddo the bride there's a good reason like uh, like there's a good reason for that I don't think she was a good character (laughs) like i I I loved the physical prowess and like the martial arts skills of the bride. Like I thought she was a badass, and I loved uh, the physicality of her, and I loved the way that she was this female enforcer mowing down armies of dudes. I thought that was all awesome. But I didn't think like any of the other stuff. I don't think anytime she spoke at added anything to the movie, and like uh, the way she seemed like a complete idiot in Kill Bill too. Like just I don't know the bride. The bride didn't do much for me other than the bad like martial arts skills, like huge props there. Overall, I didn't think she was a super interesting character. Um, I want to watch really you. I, I want to watch you watch movies to see how you come up with <laughs> like this. <laughs> how is she not a great, she, she, she was phenomenal in those movies. She did such a great job at like the absolute heartbreak that she went through with watching her entire family get slaughtered while almost being killed with a baby in her. It is the coolest revenge story not hands down, but it is one of the coolest revenge stories that they have done. I thought her, you know, you may not like Uma Thurman as a actress in general, and that's fine. I completely get that. But I thought what she did for the character was fantastic. Her speaking scenes, you could tell the absolute, like when she saw that BB was alive at the end with eh, Bill, like eh. the emotional effect that she got on her face like i'm not even a parent and i could just feel that like love for a child kind of that 
So, man, I got to disagree with you, pal. I got to say that she did such a great job at that. And so, yeah, I mean, your other characters on here, hands down, yeah, absolutely are fantastic. But to, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say that she didn't do anything for this movie besides the martial arts of it. Yeah, I mean, I had her at number, number five on my list, but I, she was strong enough to carry two movies you know which i get you know was really one movie but extended into two but she like i thought she was very good at displaying that uh like you said the heartbreak and then the, the revenge factor throughout the entire movie and especially like you said at the end when when she saw that that her child was still alive and, the, and, and that emotion and how that came out yeah i thought she did awesome i and I'm not a huge Uma Thurman fan. Like I loved her in Pulp Fiction. I loved her in this movie. Can't even really name one of her other movies, but um, I thought she was she was great in this movie. Batman and Robin. She has Poison Ivy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, you are. I yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> no, she I, has Poison Ivy. I actually thought she was pretty good. I just didn't think the bride was all that interesting, other than like being this murderous rampaging thing. And like for being a murderous rampaging killing machine, yeah, that was awesome. I just. I don't know. I don't think the murder machine is that interesting of a character, but I respect mm-hmm. you guys' opinions. Casey, you also had, as an honorable mention, Quentin Tarantino's cameos in his films. He pops into most of his films. Uh, do you want to talk about one that stands out for you? Uh, I I love him as Jimmy in, in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> that, that whole scene when they, you know, when they're like shoot the guy in the face and there's blood everywhere and they call the call the wolf in uh and then yeah they take him to jimmy's house and then jimmy is quentin tarantino and they're sitting in his kitchen in his coffee and like the whole like hey you want some coffee oh man this is really good coffee and he's like Fuck you shut up i know my coffee is good like, the whole, like just that, that whole scene and like kind of that in all of his like little little cameo performances he has that just that little I don't know, panache or whatever you want to call it where it's just it gets me every time and and, and uh Django Unchained where he's that kind of like the guys at the end and he ends up getting blown up with a dynamite like what a way to go out Quentin <laughs> I mean bravo like <laughs> I, I just love that so yeah I just I enjoy every single time he pops into his movies mm-hmm. yeah I do too and Jimmy also stands out for me like when he's yelling at Samuel L. Jackson, is there a sign in my yard that says dead N word storage? Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. No, he's really good. Got to get it done before my wife comes home. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it was mm-hmm. interesting in Reservoir Dogs. He had planned to play Mr. Pink and uh, he ultimately told that to Steve Buscemi and said it was going to take a killer audition to get the role. And he wound up going with Steve Buscemi. And I think he did. He I probably made the right call. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree on that one for sure. Uh, Billy, looking at your list, you had Tim Roth as Mr. Orange from Reservoir Dogs. What yeah. uh, what draws you to this character so much? Well, we haven't talked about Reservoir Dogs for much about this, and so I'm glad that I'm able to bring it up at some point in this podcast. Uh, Reservoir Dogs just alone as a movie was really great. It's one of my favorite movies to watch when I was younger when it came out. It really got me interested in Tim Roth as an actor because he's just he was so great as the the two different characters that he was playing as far as the undercover cop goes and the bank heist thief at the same time, you know, trying to gain the respect of. Oh, my God. Why can't I think of this? Uh, Joe. Yeah. The one that he winds up, you know, who kills him at the end is Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Yep. Harvey Keitel. 
his acting in that movie is just great. I mean, like he's acting while pretending to be shot. You know what I mean? Like for a very long time, like he is an actor who is dying or a character who is dying, but as an actor, he's got to like portray like excruciating pain by being shot in the gut and bleeding out the entire time. And then admitting that he's an undercover cop to this guy that's been backing him this entire time and like speaking for him, like he's not the rat, he's not the rat. And then just the anger and pure frustration that came out at the end before they finally shot him and the movie ended. I thought Tim Roth just rocked in that movie. He was so good. Yeah, he was good. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you guys is why do people love Reservoir Dogs so much? Like, I watched it back in the day, and I thought it was fine then, and I watched it again for this show, and I thought, yeah, it's pretty good. It's fine. It's all right. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know why that movie resonates so well with people. For me, it's the way that I started realizing that Quentin Tarantino was really good at filming a lot of actors in one scene for a very long period of time. He's a very, that's where the dialogue starts coming in the characters being cast. Well, they all play off of each other really well. You follow the dialogue, you follow the story, you're intrigued. And I remember it being one of those first ones that, you know, you could, I mean, I'm trying to think did the entire movie besides a couple of cutaways of them running away from the diamond heist take place just on that one set. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it's, you're basically watching a play at that point, you know what I mean? So it's got a 12 angry men kind of a feel to it. If you want to go back to a really old movie with a lot of actors in one set playing off of each other extremely well. So, I mean, I think he did. I think it, I think that's what grasped me out of it. You know what I mean? Uh, it's He just did such a great job at like keeping you rooting for a lot of characters and then angry a lot of characters and just a lot of back and forth with dialogue and like whodunit kind of a thing. And so, yeah, I think that's, for me, that's what it was, was every character was just great in what they did. So, yeah, I got to go with that's why it drew me in and that's why I still can watch it to this day. It's just really well done. I think that's exactly exactly right. And what it appeals to me, too, is that it's a it's more depth of character than anything. It's more, you know, the story itself. Yeah, it's kind of whatever, you know, what centrals centers around a, a diamond heist. But you never even see the diamond heist. They talk mm-hmm. about it. They talk about what went on. But you never actually see that aspect of it. All you see is them talking about it and planning it in the beginning and the aftermath. What happened? We know that stuff went bad. We know what happened at the heist. We know that there's suspicion that there's a, a an insider who's somebody who's working against them. We don't know for sure. But, you know, um, and, and then that development, that story, um, and, and the characters, again, and that's all of his movies, really. You know, again, it comes down to characters and interaction of the actors. And um, and even, again, the, the the music, like you noted, Tom, like the, the scene where, they're, where he's cutting the dude's ear off. Like just the the character, the scene, the music, everything about it um, and, and how well it all plays off, off of it itself. Yeah, I thought it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> So the Simon Cowell of podcasting. <laughs> what did we miss? 
tweet your thoughts to at TomSidLogicOIO or email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That's overratedpod at gmail.com. Hey, Tom, I pulled my groin arresting alligators in my basement yesterday. You know what, buddy? They can help me with that. I sure do. Check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and alligator injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That is PremierHealthMN.com. For our second main segment today, we're going to break down Tarantino's most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. The film follows DiCaprio as the over-the-hill actor Rick Dalton, struggling to find his place after a successful run as a TV cowboy in Hollywood. Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, Dalton's longtime stunt double turned driver slash gopher slash handyman. A large part of the film follows Dalton as he shoots a pilot for a new western and embarks on an Italian film adventure. Upon returning from Italy, the newly married Dalton decides he can't afford Booth anymore, so the duo goes on one last bender together before a climax that pulls several story threads together. This film explores themes of hippie culture and provides an alternate history of the Manson family murders. Did I miss any of the key points? I don't think so. Nope. This film came out last year. What stood out to you guys? Millie, we can start with you on this one. I got to go with Leonardo DiCaprio's performance and not just because he's a good actor in pretty much every movie that he's in, but he plays such a good version of a washed up actor in his time. And you can see the frustration and the almost like he can see the writing on the wall as his character in this movie, that his career is fading and the times are going to other actors and younger actors, especially with his like whole dialogue he has with that little girl on the Western uh, scene that they both do together, like where she's talking to him in the casting director's chairs and he can kind of see where the new generation is coming up in actors. And then he really gives it his all as the bad guy in that fake movie that they're shooting. And you can see the pain and you can see the like excitement where he gave like another great performance and like probably the best of his lifetime. And Leo just did such a great job through the entire movie. You could, you know, like how his highs and his lows, and he really pulled it off. Like I'm always impressed with him as an actor in general, but something about this movie, like, yeah, he, he totally, he totally killed it in this entire thing. So that's one that stood out for me. Another one would be like the set design and costume design as a whole. I was fortunate enough to watch this with my dad, who, again, I said in the beginning, He's huge into Quentin Tarantino. Well, this had a lot of the stuff that he had when he was growing up. So a lot of the same like commercials that like played on the TVs he remembered as kids, the music, the timeline, the looks of the cars, the looks of the, you know, the looks of the towns and stuff like that. So it was really cool to like kind of watch the movie through him watching it, you know, at the same time. So that stood out to me a lot. And that was a really cool thing, special thing for me watching this movie. So yeah, I think he I think he nailed this movie. I think it's one of his better ones. So I was I was highly impressed about this movie or highly impressed with this movie, excuse me. Casey, what stood out to you? Yeah, similar to that that how he <laughs> captured that late sixties, you know, into the early seventies vibe of Hollywood just recreated so well. He always does a great job of that, but like you mentioned, really just the, the 
you know, from again the music and the you know the scene where Brad Pitt's driving down. I don't know if it's Hollywood Boulevard or whatever, but you see all the old restaurants and things like that. Uh, it just kind of really, really draws you in and, and does a great job of like setting you in that in, in that in that um, that Hollywood scene. And then both, you know, it and DiCaprio, they were both fantastic in the movie. Uh, you expounded on Leo's scene that. Well, the one that really stood out to me was when he, after he messed up the lines the first time, and he would practice them so so much the night before, and he went into his trailer and just like raged, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're gonna make, you know, like they're gonna think you're an idiot, they're gonna think you didn't try, and he's throwing stuff and smashing stuff, and like just like you could you can feel the pain, you go you can mm-hmm. feel like like I am washed up, I am no good anymore, and then he turns it around entirely and has, you know, the best performance probably like of, of his life, you know, in, in the, in the next, next scene. And, and uh, just the elation on his face after that, like when he realized he goes from the bottom of the bottom to the top of the top, like I still got this, I can still do this. It was just like you playing among us, dude. Like the, <laughs> the fury and the, the rage bottom, in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, Brad and Brad Pitt too did just an equally amazing job. Like, I, I love his character in this movie. He just such a chill dude, you know, like doesn't care. Like, <laughs> and you know, like just see him, him interact with everything, and and how he he portrayed that character was just a joy to watch the whole time. Yeah, I agree that both Leo and Brad Pitt were just phenomenal, and they did an amazing job in this film. One of the things that stood out to me was that the story was very meandering. Like I didn't, I, I didn't know where I was going. Like halfway through the film, two thirds of the way through the film, I'm like, "Where is this going? Like, what's going to happen? Like, what's 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 the end game here?" Like, uh, I was just surprised. Like, even though his stories usually have like a different structure to them, like it always they have a different feel. Like they're going somewhere. You're like you're gonna figure out who the mole is in Reservoir Dogs. You're gonna figure out. You're gonna see how it all works out in Jackie Brown. You're gonna see the end of the war and Inglorious Bastards. And like I just didn't. I didn't. I had no idea where this was going. And maybe it's just because I don't know history. Same thing. Like I. I knew this was like loosely based on the Manson murders. So I fully expected, oh, this is Tarantino. He's going to, oh, here we go. Like, this is going to be Manson murders. And the way that it ended, like, and I know Billy wants to talk about this, like, but like, I, I was like, oh my God, like, are you kidding me? The way, the way that everything kind of turned at the end just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. The, the trailer, if I remember correctly, the trailer of this movie, it seemed like it was going to go more towards a, Manson family murders type of movie rather than a washed up actor played by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and his, you know, stunt double Brad Pitt was more of the main focus in this movie, actually. So that took me by surprise, too. So I do have to agree with you guys. It uh, definitely was one where you're like, whoa, okay. And then, yeah, Tom, I can see totally watching through the movie. You're like, so what's what's exactly going to happen now? So, yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, I didn't pick up the Manson family murder things at all from the previews maybe it's just my own lack of knowledge of history in our country but uh you know i thought it was gonna be all about this washed up actor like that's what i was expecting and just like he went to italy to do the movies i'm like is that gonna be the end like i don't know and then the ending happened and i'm like oh well that was very tarantino i was waiting for the like the tarantino-ness to come through <laughs> and then afterwards like we're, we started looking up the history on our phones we're like oh 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 <laughs> 
So uh, maybe I'm just an idiot about history and I have no appreciation for modern cinema. <laughs> Show's the whole over, time where you just like, why are they following around Sharon Tate? Like, what the hell does she have to do with this story? <laughs> yep. I mean, was that kind of, like, right. in your mind? Yeah. Like, what the hell? I mean, I mean, I like to look at her. I mean, don't get me wrong. She looks great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, why, why is Sharon Tate? Well, I'm going to jump to what I thought was one of the shortcomings of the movie. Like, why did they cast Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate? Like, I get that Sharon Tate is, now that I know the history surrounding the film, I understand the importance of the character, but, like, she was barely in the film. Like, she's just dancing several times. And, again, Margot Robbie is gorgeous, and, like, I have no problem watching her in anything. But it's like, why cast such a big star when you could have essentially had any model fill that role? Margot Robbie probably wanted to be in a Tarantino movie. Like when Quentin Tarantino asks you to be in a movie, I'm sure you say yes, you know, like especially because you know if you do a good job and people like you in it, more than likely if he makes more movies, you're going to get more opportunities in the future. Mm -hmm. Yep, probably appreciates it and probably likes Margot Robbie's feet because (laughs) apparently he's got a foot fetish (laughs) and he has that show up in every movie and I just learned of that as of like a year or two ago, and now I can't unsee feet <laughs> in Tarantino's movies. So I'm just guessing it's another pair of feet for him to look at on film. So that's where I'm going, just because I'm weird like that. Yeah, I could see that. I wanted to spend some time talking about the standout performances. We've already kind of done it. Uh, Casey, you mentioned the kid actor, uh, Mary Bell or Marianne or something, but there's a child actor in the Western, and she is just phenomenal in this movie. Like, she is apparently, is that what they call a method actor? Like, she is 100% dialed in. Like, Leo, they're just completely different eras. Leo's, like, drinking and smoking on set, and, like, she refuses to speak in, like, her real name. She doesn't want to break character anytime she's on set. And I just thought that kid did an awesome job. I thought she was so good good in this movie i agree 100 percent. she was really really fun like i don't know if she's been in anything since then but i think you know if any she's got a bright future ahead of her for sure <laughs> if she if she can uh do as well in, in future movies as she did in this one well let's get into the big fight on this movie then who had the standout performance because for me it was leonardo dicaprio casey i think you have a different opinion yeah, I thought Pitt's character really stood out. I mean, the movie I think followed Pitt's character more than Leo's character, maybe. Although I don't, I mean, I haven't seen a breakdown of screen screen time, but a lot of it was following Brad Pitt around and like his interaction with the hippies, and then in, you know, like I, I loved his the backstory as we found out, you know, like why he was banned from from certain movies and things. The fight with with Bruce Lee, like he's just this such a you know, easy going, living day to day kind of guy, but he's just a complete closet badass who could take on Bruce Lee, he <laughs> destroyer of hippies. You know, like <laughs> I just enjoyed everything and like the the scene with when he hit, picks up the hitchhiker hippie and like she's like, you know, hey, you want me to suck your, you know, whatever, and, then, and he's like, how old are you? And they get you know the interaction with them and like when he's like, you know. I haven't been to jail yet, and I sure ain't going to jail for no poontang. Like that, <laughs> great scene, great line. Like, uh, I don't know. I just I enjoyed him every single time he was he was on on the scene. I mean, don't get me wrong. Leo did a fantastic job, but Leo is is Leo, and like I felt like Leo's character was more what Leo was probably like in movies. You know, like he was portraying himself more than anything, and Brad Pitt was equally as big a star 
as Leonardo DiCaprio is playing a washed up stunt man, you know, like that seemed to be, I don't know, like just it's more, I think, I don't know. Billy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this was a tough one because I want to say both and just be done with it because they just did a great job as equal characters, <laughs> as actually as different characters because they did. I mean, you can, you see Casey's point where Pitt is so, he does such a great job at playing a, yeah, he's a stunt man for a once famous actor who's kind of on his out outs in Hollywood right now which then kind of means that he is also on his outs because he's really the only one that can get Brad Pitt's character onto movies because he's got to like, you know, vouch for him. Like, oh, it's okay. He'll behave on this set. He'll be okay. You, you have my word. He's, you know, or Pitt's always asking him, hey, can you, you know, you want to get me on a scene on this movie and stuff? So he does a really good job at playing that kind of, that kind of guy who's only bad when his boss is a bad and is starring in movies. But Leo, and I already went off on why he did such a good job in this movie, so I won't repeat myself. Uh, but I, I just, you just could really believe this character and his pain of becoming an alcoholic and knowing that he is on his way out as once on top actor. So it was really tough to choose. So I'm sorry I have to be that guy and <laughs> choose both. But if I had to have my druthers about it, I'd go with Leo over Brad. But by a very slim margin. Yeah, I heard Leo. I went with Leo because um, I like Brad Pitt's character a lot, but he was more of a steady, calming influence where Leo's character was kind of all over the place. And I like the way that Leo just captured those, the wide range of emotions and the everything that uh, his character went through. And boy, I cannot remember his name. Rick Dalton went through. But both phenomenal. And I think that the relationship that they had, I thought that was really good and really well done. And like it carried what was otherwise a slow and kind of, meandering movie uh were there any shortcomings in this film for you guys like what did you think of the portrayal of bruce lee i guess it created a bit of a controversy didn't look into that all that much so i'd have to was it bruce lee's son or uh, daughter or somebody that had an issue with the guy that portrayed him because they don't think that he portrayed him correctly they kind of portrayed him as a prick Am I am I right on that? Yeah, it was actually Kareem Abdul-Jabbar who came out and said that it was an inaccurate depiction and that the artist has the Whoa. right... Whoa! <laughs> Whoa, I was way off. Yeah, well, I think... You're one of... it's a family member, but it's <laughs> former basketball star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, the and... one that you, I'm assuming because he starred in a kung fu movie with Bruce Lee. Yeah, they trained together for that yeah. film, and uh, he's... His point was that Tarantino has the artistic right to portray people however he wanted to. And I think one of Bruce Lee's kids came out and said that their dad wasn't like that at all, that it was a much more arrogant and like abrasive character. And I think uh, like my take on it is that they, Tarantino made him what he had to be to set up Brad Pitt as the bad ass. Like, he had right. to be like he had to be so over the top that it would made, make Brad Pitt chuckle to set up that confrontation. I'm like, I don't... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong and it was just sloppy writing or a sloppy portrayal, but I thought that that's what Bruce Lee had to be to make his alternate history work out. I could see it here yeah. or there, because, I mean, Bruce Lee was a philosophy major, if I'm not mistaken, and so I could see that, like, they were trying to get that dialogue in there, but not. I think they came, it, I could see where his family might be upset about that, because it came up more as arrogant than it did as, like, insightful. I, I don't know, that's just, that's just yeah. me. Could see that and i think i think you're right tom though that like you look at the setting and, and you have to think like okay who's the biggest bad ass 
in Hollywood at this time. And it was probably Bruce Lee. And then you have Brad Pitt, who, like I said, is like just this, like he goes, he goes toe to toe with him, you know, like, and I think, I just think that's hilarious. Um, and I think that's just Tarantino being Tarantino. And like you said, rewriting parts of history in the way that he, he envisioned it. And I'm sure he has a ton of respect for Bruce Lee. I mean, he has a huge, you know, his movies have t- lots of, of Kung Fu and, and, and martial arts in it. So I'm sure there's the respect, but yeah, I mean, Bruce Lee in this movie is portrayed more of as a, a little bit of an arrogant all and, and Pitt fights him over it. And it's hilarious. Yeah. And I mean, he's rewriting history in a couple of his films. It's like, why are people hung up on one historical figure who was maybe portrayed in a different way? I mean, like he changed the ending of world war two for Christ's sakes. Like he's going to take some creative license with things. Absolutely. That's true. Another thing that I didn't care for in the film, maybe maybe I'm just nitpicking. You guys can let me know what you think. But I hated that they didn't tell us whether or not Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, killed his wife. Like It's alluded to that that's why <laughs> part of his career fell off because uh, he uh, allegedly killed his wife and got away with it. But I, I hate not knowing whether he was actually a bad guy or if like he was a victim of bad circumstances because that colors my perspective of that character entirely. It's Casey, you go first. Well, I I think it's I don't know. It didn't bother me at all. I, I I think it adds to the the mysteriousness and the mystique of of that character. You know, that would it make him less likable if we did know? Probably. Maybe that's why we don't know. Because if he did actually kill his wife, who judging by her actions on the boat, not that anybody deserves to get thrown over and die, but she was in pretty. <laughs> so, um, so um i i like the fact that we don't know because i think i would have liked him less had it showed him you know putting a spear through her heart and throwing her overboard you know like so i like to think that he didn't and maybe she just had an accident but you know i it didn't really didn't bother me as much as it bothers you yeah not to, I, didn't, I don't think it took away from his character if you would have known or not known. I think the, you know, I guess you could go with comical aspect of him like harpoon in hand and it just pans up to him just kind of with a little <laughs> grin and then, you know, the scene cuts away. It kind of just leaves you up to think about it how you want to think about it. So I thought he did it just fine, you know, and just, you know, it's it's it makes for the it makes for more dialogue in the movie because then you get on set that are talking about oh didn't he kill his wife is you know what i mean so i think it kind of plays on his character pretty well yeah i don't know i mean casey we talked about this in our new game plus show about the medium and the ending they had in that game like sometimes i feel like you need to take a stand to define your characters and like they just he left it open to interpretation i don't care for it in this case i wanted something black and white if it works for you guys that's great um, is there anything else we want to discuss about this movie? I would like us to close this segment by giving it a rating. Were there any other points that we wanted to bring up? A little bit slow moving for me. I, I felt like, I don't know what parts could have been cut out, but like it, it just, you know, just kind of seemed, some of the scenes seemed to just drag on more than they had to for me. Um, but in, in the end, I, I still enjoyed it. Um, kept, kept my interest peaked the whole time. Um, I just wish it was maybe a half hour shorter than it was. Yep, I gotta go with shorter. There's some scenes in there that probably didn't need to be in there. Yeah, the only good scene about the whole compound thing with Brad Pitt being there with the Manson cult 
the only funny or part that I enjoyed about that entire scene was him punching the cultist in the face and making him change the tire and then like stopping the entire cult from trying to come and attack on me. He's like, I'll f- hit him again. Like, I really liked that scene. But the rest of that entire time when he's like trying to figure out who these people are and they took this old man kind of hostage and took over his farm. I don't think really I just showed that they were, I guess they were trying to build on that's the Manson family that's moving into town. I just didn't think it really had anything to do with the plot of the rest of the movie. Yeah, totally agree. Like I thought that scene would have only made sense. Like if Charles Manson was there, like he interacted with Charles Manson, like had this chance encounter, right? The butterfly effect that sets up Mm -hmm. the ending. Right. And I know that Leo's character does have a, brief interaction with Manson and whatnot. But yeah, I think he could have been there on the compound and it may have made the scene a little bit more ominous into knowing that this is what's going to happen at the end of the movie, even though it didn't. Hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about the ending of the movie, Tom, because it's so good. Can we talk about it yet or no? Well, the movie is a year old. We'll say spoiler alert right here. This, we are going to spoil the end of uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. The ending I'll of this make it brief. <laughs> <laughs> in the ending of this film, Quentin Tarantino rewrites history, some murders that happened to a famous person. Uh, instead, they wander into Leonardo DiCaprio's house. Yes. The famous murders, the Sharon Tate, and then the families in the Hollywood Hills that are killed by the Manson family, the infamous murders were sabotaged by Brad Pitt, and he kicks all of their ass and kills them all and then Leonardo DiCaprio burns one to death in his pool with a flamethrower from one of his old movies god the part I talked about earlier I jumped up and I said he did it again he (laughs) he changed history in his own way I just was floored by it I loved it so much Casey talk please I'm so excited to hear your words on this if you can feel bad for you know, a crazy psychotic hippie, you know, the, the, the girl that charges him and he hits her in the face with the dog food. Then she's the same one that ends up getting torched in the swimming pool. Like everything that that girl, and like the fact that like, she's just screaming the whole time. Like you're like, shut her up, shut her up. Oh, okay. The flamethrower did it. Yep. That's perfect. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Like, like I said, this whole movie, I was expecting gruesome, murder to, to take place on Sher- on pregnant Sharon Tate and the uh, mm-hmm. I forget the the other famous actor but uh, not Polanski because he was out there but anywho the, the the friend or whatever of Sharon Tate's and everybody else I was expecting it that way just Tarantino you know whatever and, and for that like Brad Pitt tripping on acid smoking this cigarette the three hippies break into the house and he's like <laughs> I know you <laughs> no you were the guy on the horsey like, <laughs> the whole scene, like i'm just laughing and like oh i i don't know the, the way that tarantino does it like he can make gory bloody messy killing funny somehow i don't know but but he, it, it cracks me up every single time especially in this movie because the people that are kicked and killed deserved it 100 percent so 100 percent and i gotta say that i was i'm not a fan of movies that where like animals are hurt for unnecessary reasons and i'm so glad that the brad pitt's dog got to 
kick ass and he wasn't hurt. And so I was so happy with that too. Just when Brad Pitt just, they sh- close up on his face and he just does the little, and then the dog jumps and just attacks. I was like, yes. Oh my God. This was so great. So yeah, that, that whole ending, I was for the length of that movie and where I could have seen that it could have, uh, it could have been without some scenes. I got to say that the ending totally made it made everything worth it waiting for that ending i was so happy with it i was so so happy with it so yeah i gotta give my complete two thumbs up for the ending of that movie agreed where does it stack up against the other climaxes for you guys like django had a pretty memorable ending sequence uh reservoir dogs was more iconic with the three characters shooting themselves at the same time um Mm -hmm. lots of people died in jackie brown so like is this the best ending of a Tarantino film, the best climax. Man, that's a very, very good question. Best ending. I mean, Inglorious Bastards had the scene in the movie theater. That's that's pretty big. Yeah. That would be I up there. Thinking, I, I think, think Inglorious Bastards for me is still number number one as far as, as, as mm-hmm. endings go, and this is a pretty close second. I am going to go oh. with Kill Bill Volume One as the best ending, and this second. That was pretty good. Already, the fight with the crazy eighty-eights—that—that's pretty phenomenal ending to a movie. Yeah, I think I don't know. I, I still stand by my glorious bastards, and and then this number. I'd put this number two, and then probably Kill Bill Two or Volume One. That's a good one. Yeah, you guys have got some good points. Now you've got me thinking on what the best ending of one of Tarantino's movies are. Oh, man. Reservoir Dogs. That's a great one, too. They're just the Mexican yeah. standoff. And then pop, 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 pop. And then it just goes black. It doesn't really have an ending. So Jackie, Jackie Brown has an ending, but it's not like as exciting as that. Hateful Eight is... I want to say it because Tom hasn't seen it yet. Appreciate that. It's good, but I don't like that one would leave just Django yeah Django is I mean and oh man yeah, it's tough two, uh, you know it's a good ending but it, it was a happy ending yeah so it was a happy ending I guess oh man alive oh yeah I, I still stand by I'll go once upon a time in Hollywood just because of the reaction that I gave because he did it again I was so excited about that I'm happy I got to talk about it I'm sorry I had to interrupt the <laughs> I had to interrupt what we were doing before to be like, can we please talk about it now? <laughs> I got to go with that. I got to go with that. And then Inglorious Bastards, Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill. Yeah, those would be my top four. And I know there's only like seven or eight Quentin Tarantino movies, but yeah, I got to go with those as my tops. All right. Rank this film on a one to 10 scale. Billy, I'm looking at you first. Take a stand, my friend. <sighs> one to 10. I'm going to go with a. I'll give it an eight and it only dropped a couple of points just because of the, uh, the, the filler scenes that didn't need to be filler scenes. So I'll go eight out of 10. I'm right there with you. Eight out of 10 Casey. I'd give it an eight, eight and a half out of 10. I'd go a little, little bit higher than you guys. I, I really, really enjoy this movie. Not quite as much as some of the other ones, but I, I definitely, I think a little bit more than you guys maybe did. And that's our discussion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For a couple of minutes here, we're going to kick Billy out of his chair, and we're going to bring in Hobbybox Joe Burns to talk about our epic Among Us adventure on Game Pass Forever. Joey, thanks for joining us. Hey, how's it going? 
I know you're a big Quentin Tarantino fan. What do you think of Casey's take on Pulp Fiction? You're like totally out of line, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, everybody knows that the best Tarantino movie of all time was Reservoir Dogs. So, I mean, nothing else could really top it from there. So, But what better thing to talk about here? I mean, this is a very bloody experience that we're about to get into here. Very Tarantino-esque. What a ter- <laughs> terrific transition. Like, just a masterpiece, Burns. For April's Game Pass Forever game, our benevolent overlords on Patreon chose Among Us by developer Inner Sloth. This social deduction game has a crew working to repair a spaceship or base while hidden imposters try to murder the entire crew. Every time a body is found, the crew can call for a vote to expel somebody. If they expel all the imposters, the crew wins. If the imposters kill enough crew members, uh, they will take the victory. Each crew member has a series of tasks to complete in order to repair the ship or base. These consist of mini-games that range from swiping a keyguard to connecting wires or dragging a block through a maze. Imposters can kill crew members, especially Casey, but there is a timer on the kill countdown. (laughs) The imposters can travel through vents and sabotage the ship. This game has been just an unbelievable gaming phenomenon. Joey, you were the only one of the three of us who had played it before. How did you get into it, and what was your experience with the game prior to our sweet session? Yeah, so if I remember correctly, it became big kind of the end of the summer 2020. Uh, I started getting into it uh, after I started streaming and because the game actually released like over a year ago. And then it it just became popular because some big streamer streamed it and then everybody started playing it. Uh, And I think also it having that social aspect because of the pandemic and everything like that, like just was the right game at the right time, kind of like Animal Crossing was at the beginning of it. But anyway, so... Um, some of my friends that stream uh, that I met online through Twitch basically had every Saturday and Sunday they would play Among Us for a few hours. And so I started jumping on to games with them when they needed players after watching for a little bit. Um, and it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun. Some people are really good at this freaking game, though. Holy crap. Uh, like yeah. there's, there's, And apparently they come out of Casey's testicles. Yes, <laughs> they do. <laughs> but, I, I mean... Too good <laughs> i was gonna say yeah i mean the, what we played did we play two games with your kids yes yeah it, it was more than two because one of your kids was the imposter in two straight games and then not in the third oh that's right that's right i could be yep anyways joey you're saying that some people are um, really good at this game yeah some people are really good so like and and what really good means is that you're a really good detective when you're a crewmate and you're really good at pretending you're the detective when you are an imposter. And so, and part of what makes it hard to start with is that a lot of what being good in the game means is knowing a good amount about the game so that you can question people and try to catch them in lies, right? And so because, so most of the game is a solitary experience. You're running around, you're doing your tasks, you're trying to do the things. Then you have these meetings, either spawned by somebody hitting this emergency meeting button or when someone gets killed and someone finds the body, then you turn them in. Um, so sometimes that body can be found right away. Sometimes the unlucky imposter, you see them slicing someone in half and you're like, okay, what were you doing? Now, if that person's a really good player, they're like, they, they're like instantly saying, I just saw so-and-so, I just saw Casey kill Tom and he's self-reporting to try to throw the blame on me. And then nobody knows who's, who's true. And then it becomes this argument between them about that. And so I will say though, like, it's so... 
like your heart, my heart, like when I'm the imposter uh, and things are really tense and you're like, am I going to be able to pull this off or not? Like it's racing at times. And like you get into those meetings and there's four people left and you're the only imposter and you're trying to like spin lies or like throw suspicion on other people. It's, it's, it's so fun. Like when you get into those moments to try to like talk your way through it, talk your way out of it or try not to talk to get other people to throw suspicion on each other. Uh, so I think that's where like a lot of the game kind of shines um, for me. And that's, that's playing with lots of different people that have different personalities, make it kind of interesting too. That's interesting. I was aware of the game, but like, I wasn't super excited to play it. I'm not a huge fan of hidden trader games. So like, uh, I mean, because everyone always thinks I'm the traitor, even though statistically it's unlikely. And I played for like an hour before I was finally the imposter in this game. People are always <laughs> just excited to throw Tom in the lava or flush him out the airlock. Y'all are a bunch of b****s <laughs> is uh, the key takeaway here. <laughs> also, the art style was just a big turnoff for me. Like, I wasn't, uh, like, there wasn't really anything drawing me into this game. Casey, where did you come from? Um, I really only knew about it because my kids were obsessed with it when everybody was obsessed with it. And some of the accounts I follow on Twitter, too, same thing. They, just, they, they play it and mentioned it and things like that. And, yeah, all, all three of my boys play it. They love it. Um, my middle son, Chase, is really, really, really good at it. And it's funny you say that, Joey, what you were talking about, because clearly our group of friends was not very good at it because most of the time when meetings came, everybody was kind of like, I don't know. Uh, like, well, we, we had a lot of no votes, which probably never yeah. Well, so well, that's the weird thing is their strategies as to when you have to vote and when you don't have to vote. So like, yeah, there's like, there's statistics to it. Uh, it's that people, I just believe them when they say, well, when, when there's only six left, you have to vote, blah, blah, blah. and stuff like that. Let me stop you there, Burns. If you believe that there are statistics and like governing rules to Among Us, like you are taking this game way too seriously. Like, go find well, something else to min max. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 big on streaming though, so people want to be good at that because then people are like, oh yeah, yeah that person. If they're playing Among Us, then I'm going to watch them play Among Us too. You know, so so that's part of it. That's not my reason for playing it. I play it because I think it's fun. Um, and the people I was I was playing with were always funny to play against, and it was fun to feel, kill them. <laughs> we got together for one night of hilarity playing this game together as an OIO community. What stood out in our group session? Casey, you had a lot of fun with this game. Uh, actually, yeah. actually, did have a lot of fun, but here's what it I learned. It sounded like it. Don't ever, don't ever leave the group or you will die, because... I died a lot, like way more than anybody I think in this game. Like, um, I don't know if it was just because I was an easy target or if it was just one of those, you know, like I felt like I was the only one trying to complete tasks and everybody else just stayed in a big group and didn't do anything the whole time, which isn't really how you go about winning this game when you are the crew, crew. but you know, like I just, yeah, I got, I got my butt kicked and, uh, that was basically it. I just got my butt kicked a whole lot. During this game. <laughs> One thing I thought was really funny when we were playing, like Casey thought that you could see other players tasks or that we all had the same tasks. So like one time, like I was in a room trying to figure out one of the mini games for one of the tasks and you just went ballistic because like, apparently I stood by this thing and the wires weren't connected for you. And so like the next vote, you just railed into me and like, I'm a crewmate. I'm like, well, I guess either Casey's the imposter or uh, he just doesn't get the game. 
I don't know if I railed on you, Tom. Oh, I you did railed. Say, yeah. uh, <laughs> I think that I, was I polite, one of the more <laughs> politely said. Tom stood at the console for far too long to not have completed the task. I mean, that's a recollection of how it went. Um. It's kind of like a uh, tell me why moment here where like there's two different accounts and Joey and I are both believing the true account while Casey has his own recollection. <laughs> for my part, I didn't take this game too seriously with winning or losing. And that's that's really rare for me. Like for me, I had a lot of fun just chasing our friend Pat around and making him think that I was the imposter and I wasn't. For some reason, that just cracked me up. Like when I was just a crewmate, I'd love to just chase Pat and see him run and hear him on voice chat getting all antsy. <laughs> well, and I, and I will say that was – so there's like a couple of things of our game uh, – so first off, so many people were new players. So that made it difficult for everybody to learn about the game because like other than me, I don't think anybody else had played it until your kids started playing uh, a bit, Casey. And so so I think that made it hard because especially like with the meetings and things like that, people like you learn kind of how to run, how to operate in meetings by playing with other people that kind of that run them and sort of ask questions and and point things out. And so it was it was kind of difficult to do that. Also, then, since we had because of the issues with people not being able to have discord up along with the game at the same time, so you could mute discord readily, we just had open mics the entire time, which makes it a little harder to hide certain things. And it means that in the meetings, you have less information to share because you already have all this information from, you know, hearing Casey scream when he got killed by me. <laughs> and then me laughing. I, I never outed anybody though. But yes, every time I got killed, it was really fun to yell, You mom! Not your God! It! It's true. Yeah, that that was a high point for me. Katie lost his <laughs> mind every time he died. It was great. <laughs> yeah, I mean I we certainly bumbled through it. Like there's a lot of different little mini games and like you couldn't possibly have explained them all to us leading in. Like you're either swiping your key card or you're dragging a block through a maze or you're pulling down on a lever or you're pushing buttons and like uh, when you're the imposter you have a different set of skills and that was really hard for me like I never did figure out how to sabotage like you were trying to explain it to me at one point but uh, it just didn't really click for me so it was for me it was fun to run around and kill people and I won a couple games as the imposters but it was probably my teammate carrying the load being an imposter is a lot harder because there's more things that you have to balance and you have to know the maps a little bit to know, okay, it's going to be key for me to lock these doors here. Um, well, first off, it's going to be key for me to know what button does what when you're in the sabotage menu because the game doesn't really tell you how that works. Uh, so, I mean, that's probably a downfall of it to some extent. Like there's no real onboarding. There's no tutorial. I think there is like a how to play button somewhere. I've never clicked on it because um, I basically learned just by watching other people stream it and then playing it um and it's a lot to pick up at first you're not very good at the game the first time you start playing it especially as an imposter um it's really kind of about just sort of learning and gaining the skills with how to do the different things and when are the right times because there is a strategy to and then we can get into talking about like the strategies you would use like if you're an imposter there is a strategy to if you see large groups of people in certain areas lock them in and put something else on the other side of the map that they have to get to within 60 seconds or they all die. Like, so that's part of the strategies that you do. Um, as an imposter also, one thing I like to do is try to get people to see that I stop some of the hazards 
so that they think I'm a crewmate. Um, and then, yeah, just, just kind of keep messing with them. And then it's always trying to make sure people are as isolated as possible when you kill them. I typically don't use vents because every time, almost every time I've used a vent, I get caught because I'll, I'll pop right into it or pop out of one right as somebody walks by. And it's like, sure. You know, it's just like the timing is just so hard um, I, with that. I also noticed that you would uh, set off some sabotage thing where you'd all have to run to a beacon and two people would have to touch it at once. So you'd be standing next to the beacon as the imposter. At least twice you got me this way. And I ran up to it and I'd hit the button and you'd kill me. I'd go. Yep. I can't curse because yep. like honor system on the on the uh, voice chat, but it was a good tactic. You got me a couple times there. Yep. And then, then as a crewmate, the biggest thing is really just trying to pay attention where people are at. Um, like it's, it's not something as a newer player that you're going to use, but there's a couple of different. So in admin, you can see where people are at on the map. If you use like the admin console there. So you can see there's two people in this room, three people in this room kind of thing. There's also security cameras in, in an area where you can look at security cameras and it'll show you feed footage of people moving around. Um, so that's one way you can find bodies or another way that you can do that. Um, and then, yeah, the biggest thing is just trying to pay attention to who's traveling with who or who's like in certain parts of the map so that if somebody dies, you have a clue as to who might, who the imposter might have been. Yeah, you should really be paying attention to the people who are directly around you. There was one hilarious moment as the imposter. I decided I was going to kill Pat right away, and like he stayed in the starting room. He ran up to a console, and I just ran up to kill him like in front of everybody. And as I went to click on kill, his girlfriend like jumped in front of the bullet completely by accident. And she honored the voice chat. She didn't say a thing. So like she's dead. She's right next to him. And I just... Oh, he didn't notice. Wander away. Just amble away like nothing happened. Oh, and that's when he got eliminated too, right? Because I walk up there and didn't I find a body? And then I was like, well, Pat was up there just hanging around and there was a body there. So it had to have been Pat. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds right. Pat got flushed quite a few times as a crewmate. That was another highlight for me. He did. There was one of the times he did it to himself, though. Like... He was trying to convince us he was a crewmate, but he said it in the way that an imposter would, like, like just hands down. It was so unconvincing. <laughs> it was like, so, Pat, you're terrible at this game. Yeah, it's Wingspan all <laughs> over again, Patrick. Nice work, dude. <laughs> now that we've played what were it, some of the uh, What were some of the strategies you guys used? I'm curious since you guys were new players. Well, I didn't ever use the cameras. I didn't ever use <laughs> like this. So, so shows how good I actually was at this game. But yeah, I mean, whatever strategy I had as a crew member, it was obviously the wrong one because seriously, I died. Like I know we said this, but I died a whole lot. Um, I found myself alone far too often. Um, if I was a crew member, I would basically just run to the closest task that there was, try to complete it, and then I would just go on to the next one and on to the next one. But usually I didn't even make it that far because I think half the time I was dead within the first 60 seconds of the game. I was only the imposter one time in all the games. So kind of like Tom said, it was just kind of weird that I was only the imposter the one time. But the one time that I was, it was me. I, I did a a slow play technique, and you know, I, I had everybody confused. I was uh, helping out with sabotages. I was reporting bodies, and then finally, uh, I was able to kill uh, Joe for the uh, for the last victory yeah. there. And so, I had a suspicion um, that you were the imposter too. I, I like had the, a sneaking suspicion. But yeah, you, you you caught me in a bad spot and ganked well, me. Well, it's so funny because like I totally every, called it. Like everybody, 
all night long you've just been screaming when you get killed and everyone dies all the time but so it's funny that you had such umbrage with it and this game like you hadn't been killed i'm like oh casey must be the imposter <laughs> yeah that's pretty pretty much it if i'm yeah. alive i'm the imposter that's that well, kind of like how tom was complaining about how he couldn't he couldn't see his mouse until he was an imposter then he didn't have any problems <laughs> yeah actually that weird how that worked that was when it was at its worst for me like you eventually told me to turn up my mouse cursor size like it would disappear on my screen and like i could click on the kill button and so i'd hover over the kill button but 30 second cooldown i'm trying to figure out how to sabotage i can't see my mouse cursor it made it very difficult to make it difficult for the players also when i died as a crewmate like i was generally worthless like i just wander around and look at stuff i completely forgot that as a ghost you can still complete your tasks yeah, I mean, half the time when I would play games like with someone that was streaming, like I would almost wish that I would just get killed. So it's like, okay, now I can just do my tasks. <laughs> I don't have to worry about like you can't be in meetings anymore. You can't do anything. You just do your tasks. You you watch the mayhem happen with them, and and you're kind of more of a passenger at that point, which can be fun if, especially if you've had some moments where you've like been really in like the uh, like argument speak, you know, argument scape, you know. Having played this game more, Joey, does it ever like come to people fixing the base or fixing the ship? Because it never happened in our games. Usually, you will expel the majority of the imposter, the imposters first. Um, but uh, yeah, it, there's been a few games where uh, tasks got finished, and that's how the crewmates have won. Well, now that we've played it, do we think we'll ever go back to it? Like, how long can this game remain a hit? For me, like. I'm good. I played it. Like, if you guys want to get together on a Saturday night and do it as, like, our close-knit friend group again, I'd be down for that, but I'm never going to seek this game out again. Um, I think I would probably, I would, if the opportunity like that ever came up again, yeah, definitely I would. Um, now that I know more about it, like, even as the imposter, I didn't even know you could close doors. Now that I know, you know, there's different things that you could do to make the game more enjoyable and obviously i think if our group played it more and more and more everybody would get a lot more familiar with it and, and things would run a lot more more smoothly but i still had a ton of fun in the, in the couple hours that we played and uh that, i think that's uh, something about the game itself is i would do it yeah i I'd, I'd like to play it more um the group that i was playing with for the longest time kind of stopped playing it more recently and my like weekends in the spring are well winter i guess it technically is now my weekends are a little weirder so it just hasn't worked out with the timing of it like the group of people that are playing it now are in england so they start playing pretty early on saturday mornings and so i'm usually eating breakfast and like getting my day going and by the time i would be ready to jump on they're probably wrapping up for supper kind of thing so like the timing just doesn't work out as much anymore but i'd like to i'd like to play it some more it, it's it's a fun game it's different from a lot of the other games that you kind of play on a regular basis because um it's a lot more like socially driven and yeah like from the series of games that i played because i played it fairly regularly on weekends for about three months and like there was some really funny stories that happened Basically, there was this one guy that kept making puns, and everybody voted him off, even though they knew he wasn't an imposter, just because they wanted it to stop. And that was that was really funny. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. There's been lots of really fun moments, lots of interesting moments, lots of kind of exciting things like catching the imposter at the last moment, uh, types of things. So yeah, I definitely play it some more. 
closing thoughts on Among Us, starting with Casey. Um, fun game. Uh, I'm glad I finally got to play it, even though most of the time I spent in game was as a ghost. <laughs> and glad I finally joined the craze. It was it, it was a good time. Burnsy. I don't know. I think it was fun. I think it was a good, like, kind of mix-up on this uh, to play. It's a very different game than any of the other games that uh, I've played on Game Pass Forever. Not that I've played a lot for Game Pass Forever or that you guys have played for Game Pass Forever. So, so yeah, I think it was a good kind of just mix-it-up type of thing. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what the future of the game is. I know they're putting a lot more effort into trying to make it into into something more. I would be really curious to see what they could do. I think there's some interesting ideas they could come up with to make it evolve into something more uh, or see if it's just going to be a flash in the pan that now that it's well, like by the time we get to mid 2021, we're like among who, what I, I forgot that game existed, you know, games are fun. I'm glad so many people are enjoying this. Like, you know, God bless inner sloth for making this sleeper hit. Like, you know, it's one thing when a triple a title like Spider-Man is an awesome experience and it's like, you know, Great. You guys are good at your jobs. I'm glad everyone is making money off it. But for something like this, God bless them for doing something wacky and for the way it's caught on. The last anecdote I want to share before we jump back into Quentin Tarantino films, Casey and I have been friends for a long time, like 25-ish years, a long time. Casey is smart, athletic, he's got good reflexes, and he's generally annoyingly good at everything that he does. So it was so much fun for me to see him struggle with this game. Like, Among Us... (laughs) Among Us will always have a very special place in my heart just for pissing Casey off so much. Glad I could help, Tom. Anything to help. As of recording this on March 11th, we're not sure what we're playing for Game Pass Forever next month, but uh, our patrons will each select a title and we'll choose a randomizer title and our patrons will vote on it. So if you enjoy this content... Please back our show on Patreon. This segment, Game Pass Forever, as well as the new standalone OIO New Game Plus are both tied to specific tiers on Patreon. You can back us for as little as $2 a month, but at $10 a month, you get an extra podcast from Tom and Joey. Check it out at patreon.com slash OIO. Burns, you want to say anything before you peace out? Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. And now we get to the three-man battle royale where we go head-to-head-to-head, giving the definitive ranking of films directed by Quentin Tarantino. The films are Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Billy, I'll never forgive you for the Guy Ritchie show and the travesty of you and Phoenix ranking Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels over Man From U.N.C.L.E. With that out of the way, what do you propose as the worst Quentin Tarantino film? I'll fight you to the bitter end. My decision is final. Just kidding. Uh, But it is. Um, Worst out of ours. And again, it's not even a bad movie, so I'll just say worst, and I don't want to use that. But uh, my least ranked i'm gonna go with jackie brown boo casey what do you think i'm gonna go with jackie brown oh man <laughs> i hate you guys so much <laughs> you are gonna be so god he is just gonna bring this up in the 
future and he's going to be like oh you remember you guys uh, talked about man from uncle and then you remember you guys talked about uh, jackie brown being the worst movies this is going to be brought up forever i can't wait well it- tom's got it i've got a number one just wait <laughs> maybe i uh i I thought that the worst Quentin Tarantino film was Kill Bill Volume 2, and for me, it wasn't even close. Uh, The things that drug down Kill Bill Volume 2 for me, first off, dramatic change in style from the first film. The first film tried to emulate an anime, and love it or hate it, it had a style that was all its own, and it stuck to that, and I really respected that vision for it. Kill Bill Volume 2 meanders more towards a kung fu film. Suddenly, there's a really old kung fu trainer, and the thing that really kills me is the bride is an idiot in this movie. She goes from this badass assassin that takes down all the crazy 88s, Oren Ishii, uh, that crazy schoolgirl with the badass weapon, to an idiot who runs in the front door towards one of these killer assassins and just gets shot in the chest and it's like it never recovered yeah there's a nice emotional punch when she finds her daughter i'm a dad like i get that and uma thurman did a great job in that moment but like i hated bill i hated basically everything about this film how can you guys possibly say that jackie brown which is maybe maybe not a great tarantino film i mean i liked it more than you guys but it's a very solid narrative. It's got great performances. Like how how do you consider that a worse film than Kill Bill Volume Two? Well, to spoil my next thing, but I do have Kill Bill Volume Two as my number seven, so they're not that far off. I will give you that. But the reason I have Jackie Brown below Kill Bill Volume Two is just that overall I enjoyed the movie a lot better. I actually really like the scenes in Kill Bill Volume Two where she's learning everything from Pai Mei. Like, I, you know, that, like, get a lot more out of that movie than, than anything that I got out of Jackie Brown. Like, that just from that scene. Jackie Brown overall, like, the story itself, I think, is actually a better story. It just, like, for me, Jackie Brown just kind of drug on a little more than I wanted it to at, at certain parts. I really didn't get a whole lot from the other characters other than Pam Greer. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, they... Were, they were fine, but they just didn't do as much for me as her. I thought that Chris Tucker was great in that film. It was a brief uh, part where he was Samuel L. Jackson's understudy or uh, one of his employees, one of his underlings. And I thought Samuel L. Jackson was great in the <clears> film. Uh, the The love interest didn't do a lot for me, but I thought he was fine. So I, I'm disappointed, but uh, I'll also say it's the only thing that Quentin Tarantino didn't write. So I'm, I can see docking it for that. Billy, what, how do you, or what is your reasoning in putting Jackie Brown at the bottom of the list over, say, Kill Bill Volume 2? Well, Tom, I'll, first off, I'll agree with you on Kill Bill Volume 2 because that's actually my number nine to not spoil anything. So it's not like I didn't put it at the bottom of, you know, it's, I didn't put it at the very bottom of the list, but it's at the bottom of the list. These are movies that I don't come back to when I want to rewatch them. Jackie Brown's one of them. Kill Bill Volume 2, that's another one. It's I only rewatched the first one because I think the first one is way better than the second one. So it does. it's not a movie that I come back to. I appreciate movies that I can rewatch over again. And Jackie Brown is just not one that I've ever gotten back to. Maybe that's my fault because I only watched it just a couple of times years back and perhaps I should jump back into it. Uh, But Kill Bill 2, no, I kind of don't really go back to that one. I will watch the first one if it's ever on TV or if it's ever streaming or whatever have you. Number one, way over number two. So yeah, so I don't 
disagree with you on volume two. I just put Jackie Brown. I put Jackie Brown below volume two just because I appreciate. I like the story of uh, Kill Bill two over Jackie Brown a little bit more. It feels more like a Quentin Tarantino film to me. Well, I am certainly disappointed, but uh, you know I'm not as worked up as I was about Man from Uncle, so. We will proceed with Jackie Brown as the worst Quentin Tarantino film. It sounds like we're not going to have too much resistance to putting Kill Bill Volume 2 as number two on the list. Do you guys, uh, Casey, what did you have below Kill Bill Volume 2? At number six? At number eight. So there were nine movies that we're ranking. Jackie Brown comes in at nine. Why are there nine movies? (laughs) What did I miss? I only have eight. <laughs> How did I miss a movie? Well, I'll run through the list again. Recapping for our audio <laughs> listeners, this is in release date order. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Oh, crap. Hold on. I've, I, I missed Hateful Eight. My bad. Hold on. I'm going to have to redo my list. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's still, I still have Jackie Brown as my as my worst movie. So Jackie Brown is, is for, would be number nine for me. I mean, Number eight, then. Kill Bill Volume 2. Yeah, same for me. Billy, you're in the same boat. All right. So we have nine. We have eight. The next one on my list, um, I mean, my next lowest film, and Casey, I sense we might have a debate here, but I had Hateful Eight next because the beginning just didn't grab me, and unfortunately I wasn't able to get through it before the end of the show, so uh, that would be what I considered the next worst film, but uh, I'm open to... I'm open to some influence here. Yeah, you need to finish that movie, and I think your your uh, uh, opinion of it will change. Uh, my next, uh, at number seven, I actually have Kill Bill Volume 1. So I went back-to-back with Kill Bills. I enjoyed I enjoy all Quentin Tarantino movies. So not, like this whole putting this list together was very difficult, difficult for me, but I think uh, Volume 1 um, had... A lot of strong moments, but compared to some of the other ones below this, it just wasn't enough for me to to put it over top of those ones. So, so that's where I'm at. Uh, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume Two, then Kill Bill Volume One. Well, I say uh, I say Hateful Eight, but I'm an idiot who didn't watch the movie. Casey says Kill Bill Volume One. Billy, what do you think in this slot? Run number seven, correct? Sorry, I was just getting my numbers switched around here myself. Yep. So we uh, had... number seven, Hateful Eight. I gotta say, it's the one that I—I uh, I, I enjoyed the dialogue. I enjoyed the "Who Done It" kind of aspect of it, but I think Reservoir Dogs did a better job at doing that than Hateful Eight did a better job at doing it. So that's my opinion. I'm putting that one at number seven. Well, Casey, we got you two to one. Do you have another rebuttal to try to sway us, or uh, you just gonna roll over and let me enjoy no, the movie because... when I get to it? I'm fine with it because Hateful Eight would be my next. So right below Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, I would go Hateful Eight. So I'm, I'm assuming that maybe your Kill Bill Volume 1 would be next for you guys, but <laughs> maybe maybe not. Maybe, maybe you guys really like Kill Bill Volume 1. I, in fact, did like Kill Bill Volume 1 quite a bit. My The one that I would propose being next, uh, you guys are probably going to kill this, but I'd say Reservoir Dogs. That's where I had my number six as well, Res- Reservoir Dogs. Yep. Really? 
Mm-hmm. So our we're two to one Reservoir okay. Dogs versus Kill Bill Volume One again. I mean, <clears> I I still have a couple movies before I get to Kill Bill Volume One. Billy, where uh, where does it kind of fall in for the list for you? Is it one of the top tier movies? Is it middle or are you? Is it like next up on the list for you? Reservoir Dogs. Oh uh, no, I'm sorry, Kill Bill. Because we... Kill Bill uh, Volume One, I have got actually as a higher ranking. Yeah, me um, too. One of my more favorite. One of my more favorites, Quentin Tarantino movies. So I would go with Kill Bill Volume 1 that we're speaking of in the higher rankings of my list. So it sounds like we're 2 to 1 it's Reservoir a, Dogs at number 6. Any other? It's interesting. Oh, oh, sorry, Tom. Um, it's interesting to me that you have Kill Bill Volume 1 high considering it doesn't really have an ending and that's something that you don't like in most movies. I mean, yes, it kind of splits but then there's the second movie that carries on the actual ending of the movie so it's it is interesting to me that you you enjoy the movie without a true definitive ending yeah i for me i got the closure that i needed when she took down oren ishii like i i just i hated the second movie so much like i wish it had never existed i was i was happy enough with the ending That just wouldn't have fulfilled her destiny, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I had to cross all the names off the list. Yeah, and I get, and I love crossing names off a list. Like I'm doing it as we talk, literally right now. <laughs> um, so we had Reservoir Dogs at six. Now we are into the top five films. The movies that we still have left are, oh boy, how do I do this without spoiling my list? Um, still alive are Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, Volume One, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we're right at the middle of the list now. Movie five out of nine. This is where I would put Pulp Fiction, which I don't understand why it's such a pop culture phenomenon. Like, I don't know. Are you guys much higher on this film? Am I way out of line here? I had Pulp Fiction at five as well. Number five. I agree with you 100. percent Huh. Number five wow. as well. Number five. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. Like you say that Tom, like watch this movie a lot. And then like after from this podcast, looking at it from a, I don't know, like a, a critic standpoint, like watching it again, I still really, really enjoy this movie. But the fact that like the story is so discombobulated, there's no real ending to it. It's really just, here's Vincent. Here's, you know, Jules, here's, uh, I forget Bruce Willis's character's name off the top of my head. I can't remember, but like, it's like, and then, yeah, they do kind of like interact to come together. You know, Bruce, like I hated the way that Bruce Willis's character ends up killing Jules sitting on the f-ing shit. like that. That actually pissed me off. <laughs> I was like, I kind of forgot that that happened. I'm like, God, that's such a stupid ending to such an awesome character. Um, so that, and then like, yeah, just for nothing to actually like, in the guy case i want to know what's in the case <laughs> you know like um that's kind of where i have it just because there's no real resolution to 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 a lot of what's going on and some of the things that did have a resolving factor to it i didn't really like the way that it happened but it's still like there's so many high points in this movie that that i love but it just wasn't uh wasn't better than the, than the rest of the movies that, that we're going to go over. It's so funny that you bring up what's in the case being something that bothered you. I didn't mind that. Like that's one where I'm fine with it being open to interpretation. <laughs> Did he kill his wife? That bothers you. What's in the goddamn case? It's so <laughs> like it glows. It's magical. What the hell? <laughs> 
is it? I gotta know. <laughs> well, did he kill his wife? Like, that's a question of morality. Like, that will definitely change my opinion on the character. Like, it casts him as a good guy or a bad guy. And I like to know who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. So, like, I can, you know, put my affection where it belongs. Just <laughs> interesting how we vary. Uh, Billy, did you have any thoughts on Pulp Fiction before we move up the list? No, you guys pretty much nailed it. I'll always watch Pulp Fiction if it's ever on, but the movies that came out after Pulp Fiction, I've enjoyed more. Just in production value, writing, casting, the whole nine. It's always going to be a great movie. Don't get me wrong. I'm not at all on Pulp Fiction for putting it in the middle of the road. But yeah, the other movies just grab me a lot better. So that's all I got to say about that. So now we move on to the top four. The fourth best Quentin Tarantino film. This is where I have Kill Bill Volume 1. Casey, you had a way lower. Billy, where? what did you have in this spot? I had in the number four spot, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's what I have there as well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because you had Kill Bill at, what, seven, Casey? Yes. I feel like our list might be uh, somewhat out of sync here uh, because Kill Bill Volume 1 is still alive at this point. Uh, since you had it at 7, I propose putting it here at 4. Um, I guess... I mean, I'm okay with it just simply because I had way down on my list. So if it's still alive and at 4, then yeah, let's get rid of this piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And Billy, for for me, comparing our two different movies, I think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had better characters, better narrative. Better, I, I think it was better in just about everything except for, like, pure action. Like, Kill Bill, I thought... Kill Bill definitely had a style that I... It, it had more style, and it had better action. But for me, I like the characters and narratives of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood better. What say you, my friend? Oh, <laughs> Uh, with us on number four, no, I've got Kill Bill Volume One is higher on my list. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, great movie, great actors. They did a phenomenal job. A uh, little long for me, so it would be hard to rewatch again. Not hard rewatch again. I shouldn't say that, but the ending is where it grabs me, and Leo and Brad Pitt are what grabbed me. Everything else in the movie, that's why I kind of put it as number four on my list here. So. It's a good movie, good top list movie. It's enjoyable to watch with my dad, so that's why I kind of put it higher on the list too. So a little personal for me on that one. Well, we need uh, we need some kind of decision here. You guys already crossed off one of the movies that I still had in my top four at this point. So uh, right now, I think Kill Bill at four makes. Yeah, I think Kill Bill at four makes sense because then that would mean that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would go down to three, correct? Well, po- potentially at three. Potentially. So, I mean, I think we all like that movie. And well, Billy had it higher. You have it. I did. I did. I have, have it right it in the here. Four spot. I had, I had it lower. So I think I think four is is the right spot for it. In in my opinion. Well, Billy, you can finally feel my righteous fury of the man from Uncle. Yes, yeah. Okay, I'll fall on that sword for you, Tom. <laughs> All right, fine. Kill Bill, Volume One, down at four. So, recapping our list so far, 
Starting at number 9, Jackie Brown. Number 8, Kill Bill, Volume 2. Number 7, The Hateful Eight. Number 6, Reservoir Dogs. Number 5, Pulp Fiction. Number 4, Kill Bill, Volume 1. That leaves us three spots left. The movies that we still have are um, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think these are the three most recent films, right? Yeah, correct. Actually, no. The Hateful Eight was in between Django and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So three <clears> out of the four most recent films. Um, oh, yep. Good call. Mm-hmm. At number, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. At, I had it at number four because I still had something higher. Already crossed off the list. You <laughs> At number four, I had Inglorious Bastards. That's my nomination for this spot. You mean number three? Yeah, we're in the three hole. Yeah, um, my list is a little jacked up because I had something high crossed off early on. So, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. <laughs> Perhaps. So I propose um, for the three-hole Inglorious Bastards. I propose in the three-hole Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I had Reservoir Dogs in the three-hole, but that got crossed off a while ago. So for, for me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood get, would get bumped into this spot. Billy, you're on Once Upon a Time as well? Yep, I'm going to go with that since it was my number four, so I'd be happy to bump it to a three for sure. Yeah, I had it at three originally on my list, but, uh, you know, to me, I enjoyed both this and Inglorious Bastards. They're right in the same territory for me, so we'll put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as number three on our list. All right, so now we have decision time. What is the best Quentin Tarantino film? Is it Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained? Do either of you, well, I'm not sure how we want to set this up. For me, it's not even close. Like, I actually had Jackie Brown at number two. It was, for me, it was Django Unchained, Jackie Brown, uh, and Inglorious Bastards came in at four for me. So I think Django is the top movie. Billy, what would you choose as the top Tarantino film? Inglorious Bastards is the top Tarantino movie for me. I had Inglorious Bastards as number one, Kill Bill Volume 1 as number two, and Django Unchained as number three. I have Inglorious Bastards also as my number one. Oh, and fascinating. I, have Django I thought this was going to be a much hotter uh, a much harder debate. Instead, you guys will just, you know, double team me. So let me make my case for <laughs> let me make my case for Django Unchained as the number one Quentin Tarantino movie. For me, it starts with the characters. I just I loved Christopher Christoph Waltz as Doctor King Schultz. I thought Jamie Fox is the other leading role. I thought those two were phenomenal, and Leonardo DiCaprio was magnificent. I think the cast was just phenomenal. I thought. The revenge slash love story was a great narrative from beginning to end. I did think that it dragged a little bit towards the end, like Joey brought up. Um, you guys kind of poo-pooed it. And maybe Inglorious Bastards didn't do that as much. But for me, I just there is one Quentin Tarantino movie that I thoroughly enjoyed from top to bottom, beginning to end, and that movie is Django Unchained. And I thought Inglorious Bastards was fine, but for me, I just didn't like it as much i appreciate the twist at the end with rewriting history i think that's an interesting thing that he did but overall for me the characters are better in django the story is better in django just the whole package is better which one of you would like mm-hmm. to rebut me first i can go first for me this is more like one a one b you know both movies are incredible i, I love them both what puts inglorious bastards for me over the top is more 
just enjoyed the character of Hans Landa a little bit more than I did Dr. King Schultz. I, I love, <laughs> love the way that both characters were portrayed. I think, um, did phenomenally portraying both those characters, but Hans Landa was like, I mean, he's the ultimate bad guy for me. And, and I just love, love that. And, and we talked about you know, the ending and everything and, uh, you know, his, his turn and twist. And, and, and I thought that was, you know, cool <laughs> for me. Like I, I, I enjoyed the way it played out. I have no problems with it. I, I love Django too, though. Like this was actually the first time that I have seen the movie. I, um, watching it through this time, it's one of those movies that I, I feel like I would watch again. But it's also one that, like, Inglorious Bastards is on TV. I would stop and I'm going to watch that movie. If Django is on, I would probably pass it by for something else that I enjoy a little bit more. Um, like. If the Matrix is on over <laughs> over Django Unchained, I'm going to watch the Matrix. Uh, but the Glorious Bastards is on over the Matrix, I'd probably watch the Glorious Bastards. So it, it's but they're they're really really close to me. Uh, but I just I'm I gotta go with the Glorious Bastards. And Billy, I'm going to stick in one more rebuttal before you go. I. Uh... The characters didn't do as much for me in Inglorious Bastards. I really didn't like uh, Brad Pitt's character all that much. Like, it seemed like Brad Pitt doing an accent to me. Like, he didn't disappear like uh, some of the other characters that I mentioned, like uh, Tim Roth in The Hateful Eight, like uh, Christoph Waltz. And <clears throat> we talked extensively about what I thought about the end of Colonel Hans Landa at the end. So I just, for me, I didn't like the characters as much, and that probably is what drug it down to four on my list. Billy, what are your thoughts on why *Inglorious Bastards* is the best Tarantino film? Yeah, this was a tough. It was splitting hairs between *Django* and *Inglorious Bastards*. They're both phenomenal movies. They're both great to rewatch over again. I would give it to *Inglorious* as I would watch one over the other. It'd go for *Inglorious Bastards* over *Django*. If I if both were on at the same time, or if I had both Blu-rays in my hand, I'd pick *Inglorious* over *Django*. Not to say that one is superior than the other i just prefer i prefer the characters in inglorious bastards over django a little bit more because again um and i'm sorry for repeating myself but it was my first introduction to christoph waltz and i thought his character was terrifyingly portrayed like he was he did such a such a phenomenal job in that opening scene and then uh, he was terrifying just terrifying so it just drew you in automatically in, in that and then Brad Pitt's character as the lieutenant, he was so over the top with that Missouri Texan accent that he actually did a really good job at, too. And his merry men of Nazi hunters were just over the top, too. I mean, the bear Jew, you know what I mean? Come on. That character was great, where it's just like, you know, the Nazis down on the ground on his knees and you're just hearing the wooden baseball back clunk clink against the side of the cave walls as he's walking out and then just bashes him over the head with that. I mean, there's just scenes in that entire movie that really grab you. And then it all came down to rewriting history with that twist ending really pulled me to loving that movie. So, so much. I thought they did it. Well, it was over the top. It was gory. It was fun. I, yeah. So I got to give it up to glorious bastards. One thing that I'll add, like we haven't talked about this too, like the bar scene in Inglorious Bastards, like I would, 
probably put that above like that it might be my favorite movie in every sing- in any of or favorite scene in any of the movies like the the interaction with all the actors uh, playing Michael Fassbender comes into it and put, and does a phenomenal job with that character as short-lived as he was in that movie spoiler alert but any <laughs> anyway like that that scene like to me might alone put it over uh, over anything and like it, as awesome as Leonardo DiCaprio was at the at the table in in Django, like the bar scene in Inglorious Bastards is like a masterpiece. I think it, the the whole way that everything shook out, Tarantino the hell out of it. You know, <laughs> everybody dead except two people, and then to have all the rain come down and and, and you know um, get her get her out of there. Th- that scene to me like is is it over the top. I'll make my add-on quick. Thank you for bringing up the bar scene because I I could go on for probably a solid hour about just how wonderful that scene is put together and the character as Michael Fassbender and the subtle nod to him putting his fingers up to ask for three beers was incorrect because the proper German way is middle finger, index finger, and thumb. And he did it the American way, or the British way, I should say, as his character was originally as the spy. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I could go on that forever, but I didn't want to lengthen this (laughs) Tarantino discussion by jumping into a scene for way too long. So yep, I totally agree with that. So yeah, 100% Casey. Well, you guys make a good argument. I'll also add that I think the opening scene of that movie in The Frenchman's Cottage that we talked about earlier that might be my favorite scene in any Tarantino film. Like I thought that was just, I thought it was massive. All time. All time. Um, it's terrifying. Well, I'd love to fight you guys tooth and nail on it and drag this on forever, but you guys are the ones who love Quentin Tarantino. I'm lukewarm on him. I think his movies are fine, but I, uh, for me, only Django measured up to true romance and everything else kind of fell below that quality line. And I liked pretty much all of Guy Ritchie's films better than Tarantino. So, now, I'm going to defer to you guys as the Quentin Tarantino experts, and we are going to put, I almost said the wrong movie, we're going to put Django <laughs> Unchained at number two, and we are going to definitively declare that Inglorious Bastards is the best Quentin Tarantino movie of all time. Congratulations, guys. We did it. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Well, we have had quite the discussion about Quentin Tarantino tonight is there anything else you would like to discuss any standout characters any standout scenes any part of the tarantino magic that we should get into before we call it a night no i think we covered a lot i just am super happy sorry case it didn't mean to interrupt there uh, this lag on this video <laughs> so i just wanted to make sure that i wasn't uh purposely interrupting there i'm so sorry um no uh, i just wanted to add that i thought this was a blast we covered a lot. We could have covered so, so much more. This could be like a three-part, two-hour-each episode discussion on Quentin Tarantino because his movies are just... I've got so much in them with so many different characters that you could go on for such a long time. So with what we covered tonight, I think we did a pretty good job. So thanks for having me. I agree. We, we've we definitely talked at length about most everything. Although not even like you said, we could have <laughs> got to do a lot more. We we only covered four of his movies out of nine, so yeah, I think I think we pretty much did what we can in the 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 short amount of time that we have. So yeah, thanks for having me as well, Tom. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Next month, Joey, Brian, and I are going to be taking a deep dive into Bloodborne. 
We're going to talk about the PlayStation 3 game, which we all got around to playing for the first time recently. And then we're breaking down both the card game and the new cooperative campaign-based dungeon crawler. It's going to be a great show. Thank you so much for listening to Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Casey at Dr. underscore Casey on Twitter and Billy at parrot.billy on Instagram, I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids.